Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for episode 39 on June 3rd, 2021. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Instagram. The audio podcast is indexed on iTunes and the video version is on YouTube. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Today, I'm interviewing Mr. Craig Yale, the president of the Yale Group LLC from Sandy, Utah. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. As I have announced several times before now, Air Medical Today is also a video podcast. As always, you can listen to the podcast and now watch it on the new Air Medical Today YouTube channel. The link to the channel is on the Air Medical Today website. Also new is that Air Medical Today is back on Pinterest and is now also posting on Instagram. So besides Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, you can follow all the air medical transport news and information on all five platforms. If you have not listened to past podcasts, please take the time to do so. There's some great information on how many of the large not-for-profit air medical consortium programs operate, as well as how they are reacting and adapting to the COVID-19 pandemic, including handling the stress that this has caused the frontline staff. Please tune in to these informative and timeless podcasts. I would also like to thank the followers of Air Medical Today on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Instagram. To date, Air Medical Today has 29,227 likes or followers, and it is increasing every day. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure to welcome Craig Yale, the president of the Yale Group LLC on the podcast today. Mr. Yale has over 45 years of experience in the development and management of not-for-profit, for-profit, private, and public corporate services that have included both emergency ground and air medical programs. Craig is a paramedic and his bachelor's degree in business with an emphasis in finance is from Regis University. Mr. Yale has held a number of positions in the air medical transport world, including Flight for Life in Colorado Springs, Rocky Mountain Helicopters, and the formation of LifeNet, Air Methods Corporation, Helistar in Istanbul, Turkey, and as the president of the Yale Group. Craig has been on the board of the Association of Air Medical Services and currently serves on the board of the Medevac Foundation International the Association of Professional Flight Chaplains, 
and is a regent and instructor with the Medical Transport Leadership Institute. Craig was awarded the Marriott Carlson Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast, Craig. It's really great to, to have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate you spending some time uh, with uh, the, the podcast and for people learning a little bit more about you. As I always do on the podcast, I'd like to, to uh, provide our listeners with some uh, background uh, and experience of the folks I interview. And uh, you have done so much uh, in the air medical transport world. I think uh, this might be a four-hour podcast, so people uh, get ready because uh, Craig's done quite a bit. Let's start. Let's start when you you started out as a EMT in 1975, and then a paramedic in '79. Uh, what attracted you to EMS, and where did you do your training? You know, it's interesting. I. Uh... It was really a, a situation where I was thrown into it. It wasn't something where I had actually decided that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I was working at a hamburger stand in Laramie, Wyoming at the time. And I um, just basically couldn't pay my bills. I was going to the University of Wyoming and I needed a job that worked better with it. And I found out that there was something they called a central service technician up at the hospital that went from three o'clock in the afternoon to 11. So I was able to take a full-time position and still be able to go to school. And I went up there for my first day. I hadn't had any training or any real explanation of what it was that I'd been hired for. Um, I used to you know, like to say that they used just the mirror test as long as it fogged, you know, they'd hire somebody for it. And the person that was there was uh, coming off their shift, but they were supposed to do some OJT for me. And what he showed me was going around to each of the floors and going to the dirty utility closet and picking up the old stainless steel bedpans, urinals, emesis basins, sure. and then go down to um, central sterilizing and wash them and then put them back into the clean utility closets. And he said, this will keep you busy tonight and we'll, we'll work on some of the other stuff later. He'd shown me how the autoclaves work, for example. So I've gone around my first you know, day in this job and I've picked up all the dirty stuff and I come back down and I'm cleaning out a bedpan of what you would expect to be in a bedpan in my little rubber suit. Thinking as soon as I get caught up on my dorm payments, I'm, I'm out of here. And a guy comes running by and he springs up in the door and he yells, let's go, we got a hot one. Well, I was standing there staring at a bedpan trying to conceive of what a hot one could possibly be. <laughs> and I realized that you know these there were big steam autoclaves in the next room. Maybe he meant there was a problem there. And he did seem to be for maintenance. So I went ahead and I went out in the hallway and looked, and this was a little extension off the edge of the hospital. And I didn't see anybody. And then pretty soon the door opened up at the end of the hallway and it was the same guy and he yelled, let's go, we've got a call. And I said, call who? You know, I, I mean, I really had no idea what he was talking about. And he said, you're on the ambulance with me, let's go. And I'm like, I'm not on the ambulance. And he said, yes, you are, I'll explain, but get your ass down here. Okay, so I go down there. Go and this the, is the first This is the first day on the job. First day on the job, yeah. <laughs> oh I mean, God. at this point, I'm about an hour into my new career. And, uh, <laughs> and so he explains to me that, um, that there are two men a night that are picked to be able to be on the ambulance. And you have to stop by the operator station on the way in order to find out who those people are. Um, but again, the requirement was to have a white chromosome. It wasn't to have any training or education. And so um, I went ahead and 
got in the ambulance and we were on our way down there. He shows me how the siren works and stuff as, he's, as we're driving. And we go to this hotel in downtown Laramie. It's three stories tall, making it the tallest building in town that isn't on the campus. And we go up in an old elevator and we get to the top and go in to check on our, our patient who is dead, dead, rigored dead. And I'm relieved because we don't have to do anything now. And I find out that, um, you know, we were full service and we had a body bag that was in the um, kit. And so we were given permission to go ahead and bring him down. So we put him in the body bag. We stood him up in the elevator shaft because there was no way to get a stretcher in there. And we started down. As we started down, uh, it sounded almost like somebody had thrown a string of firecrackers into the, the shaft. We heard this bang, 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 bang type of sound. When the doors opened up, we found out what the cause was. There was a guy that was at the counter in the hotel passing a bad check who was wanted for having killed a state trooper earlier in the year. Oh, my God. And, you know, we're talking about Wyoming where murders are very infrequent and murders of police officers are almost non-existent. Anyway, one of the, uh, you have to understand, Laramie had a, a professional fire department ambulance and we were the county service out of the hospital. And it was rare that we ran in the city, but they were on another call. And so as a result, you had the city police department show up because it was in the city. You had the sheriff's department show up because we were the county service and they ran with us. You had a person from the state patrol who was passing through who saw this Aurora Borealis out in front of the hotel and decided to stop and see what was going on. So you had multiple police officers and jurisdictions in the lobby, but one of them walked up to the counter basically to find out if the clerk knew what was going on as far as when we'd be down. And the felon turned around and shot him basically point blank in the abdomen. The other police officers took offense to that as you might imagine and proceeded to go ahead and unload their guns towards the felon hitting him three times. So now I've got, you know, I'm an hour and a half into my career and I've got a double shooting to deal with. <laughs> oh my and, gosh. And the partner um, leaves. It's uh, just, I guess, too much stress. He just decided to leave. And so I wound up getting the patients in the back of the ambulance, got a police officer to drive and we got up to the hospital. Well, the hospital wasn't, emergency department wasn't staffed 24 hours. So there's a doorbell back there you push push the doorbell, house supervisor comes out. She's one of these people that has, you know, kind of a miniature milk carton on her head, her nursing cap, and uh, had an amazing talent. She could always keep about two inches of ash on her cigarette, you know, and so um, she comes out the door and she's like, why didn't you call us? I said, I have no idea how to do that. You know, and so I started getting lectured for not having called ahead to be able to deal with it. And after I got, through being sort of laced down by her, I said, well, if that was fun, you're gonna really enjoy the present I got for you back here. So we opened up the doors and, you know, two shooting victims. She and I went in, fortunately the on-call physician had not left the building yet. Um, and he was a surgeon, actually an incredibly gifted surgeon. And um, so he makes a decision right away in the emergency department that the felon is not going to survive no matter what happens and that the police officer needs to go immediately to surgery. Well, they have to call in a surgical team to be able to do it. So he takes myself and the house supervisor into the OR. And now two hours into my career, I'm an OR tech helping on a <laughs> get shot police officer in the OR. And 
of course, I was extremely relieved as the um, crews came in from for the OR and take things over. I was I was actually happy to go back down and play with my bedpans. So I'm down there again washing bedpans, and I get a phone call that I'm supposed to go ahead and pick up the dead body of the felon and take it down to the morgue. I didn't know where the morgue was, but they drew me a map so I could do it. So I take the body down to the morgue. I get there, the pathologist is waiting. And it turns out that also one of the other duties that a CS tech did was to be a deaner. So about three and a half hours, four hours into my career, I'm now involved in doing an autopsy. Yeah, so it was just kind of a crazy night. By By the time I finally got back, got all of the bedpans and stuff washed, sterilized and back up to the clean utility, it was actually morning. And I still hadn't settled down. So I went down and stormed into the hospital CEO's office. It was somebody that I had met uh, through a relationship with my dad. My dad was a hospital CEO. And so this was somebody I'd met before, but he he had no idea that I was working there. Anyway, I went storming to his office and basically said, you know, I've seen emergency. I know what Roy and Johnny do, and this isn't it. You know, and it's it's crazy that this is what the citizens have to deal with. And he let me rant for a while and he said, fix it. And I was like, what? And he said, just fix it. And so at 19, I was basically, you know, put in charge of the ambulance and and uh, told to, to fix this thing. That is, so, that, that is an incredible story. Um, that's I, I think I've heard bits of that before, but not the whole thing. And that, that's just... Uh, incredibly your first day so that so any of your hamburger skills uh, would those transfer over at all <laughs> uh, no that, i was i was pretty much a, a counter and cleaner kind of guy there Gosh, so wow. anyway the background that i picked here is me back then you know and and you can see the official uniform good humor uniform of the mid-70s for an ambulance the white smock the white pants and white shoes because nothing was more practical for an ambulance um doing a, a display for some kids from the local area but um, that's that's a that's a fantastic story now was that at uh, Ivinson Hospital then yeah it was at Ivinson, Ivinson. Memorial in, in Laramie Wyoming yeah and then you also worked uh for Mountain Valley Ambulance yeah yeah Mountain Valley was down in Colorado Springs yeah um, my wife's education took us to Colorado Springs and I've initially we thought we were just going to be there for about six months. It was kind of an internship type of thing she was doing. Excuse me. And I really didn't want to get into a a lot of stuff. Um, We were living in an apartment that was across from a mall and there was a music store there, which is one of my other passions. And I went over and got a job at the music store. And after working there for a month, the guy's paycheck bounced. So it wasn't much of an option for me to stay. Um, what I did have was I had, you know, an EMT certificate from, uh, Wyoming and I thought I could, you know, get a transfer to Colorado reasonably well and might be able to work on the ambulance. Well, the ambulance system in Colorado Springs at the time was really quite rudimentary. And, um, the only requirement was an advanced American Red Cross advanced first aid to be able to be on the ambulance. And in fact, that was required. So in order to be able to work even though I had an EMT I had to go get an American Red Cross advanced first aid card in order to be able to get an EMS license or an ambulance license in Colorado Springs but I went to work there and as as I like to say 
first time I saw Mother Jugs and Speed, I thought it was a documentary because that was really extremely similar to what it was sort of like. We had a hodgepodge of ambulances that ran from an old, you know, late 40s hearse um, through some fairly modern great big boxes. And, and we were the principal 911 for the community. There were, there were two companies almost always in Colorado Springs at that time. And uh, you got calls based on who was the closest. And so it was an interesting environment. And I started working there as an EMT, started trying to promote the idea of getting everybody else up to EMT. Um, and it was a result of a couple of different things. I think I'd been there probably all of about three or four months when I wound up being made general manager of the company. So I did that for quite a while. Then I, I uh, resigned as a general manager to be able to go to paramedic school. Went to paramedic school in 1979. Um, came back um, to Mountain Valley and worked as a paramedic there until the opportunity came to be able to start Flight for Life. Yes. So talk talk about that. And before you talk about that, what do you think got you into the management side of things? What is it just that you were always trying to fix things yeah, think- or that? I think the problem is, is I kept forgetting how to duck, you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty clear, um, you know, the first event in, in, in Laramie, it was just, there was a need, I had a big mouth, I got stuck with it. Yeah. Um, you know, in the, in the case of Mountain Valley, um, I did a lot of things. I mean, when I got there, I just saw things that needed to be done. Um, some of them were literally things like rewiring sirens and stuff like that because they weren't working on some of the ambulance as well. Um, but we were doing 24 hour shifts and I got bored easy. So I was trying to do things and I was trying to, to fix things. Um, and it, it, was, it was a situation where I think I stood out as somebody who wasn't just trying to pass some time there in the eyes of the owner. And so when he decided to make a change at the general manager position, um, he asked me if I'd take the role. And I saw that as an opportunity to accelerate um, the changes that needed to be done. And so I, I think that's really why it was there. I, I've often said that part of my problem is almost every promotion I've ever had takes me farther away from my passion. And that was that I really enjoyed patient care. I really enjoyed having that contact. And every time I took a promotion, it made it so that I had less of that opportunity. But it also gave me the opportunity to make sure that those people that were doing it had what they needed. Had to it, yeah. And that's that's fantastic because I always like working with staff that you know want to think beyond um, you know just doing their job, coming to work, doing their job, and going home, but looking at ways that you can make things better. So, so let's talk about the. I've told people you know, many times that there are two things that you need to to get out of your 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 lexicon, if you will, if you want to find yourself in a management position. And that is the first one is don't say it's not my job. And the second yep. one is don't say it's not my fault. Okay. Yep. If, you, if somebody you want to have in a leadership role doesn't worry about whether it's their job and they don't worry about whose fault it is, they just get it fixed. And as long as, as that's your attitude, then I think you're, you have the chance to be able to do a lot of change. Yeah, I, my two uh, pet peeves are always, you know, people would say, you know, my bad or 
uh, above my pay grade. You know, yeah. no, you know, take some responsibility, fix it. If you're not the one, find the person that can. So um, let's talk about the Flight for Life program at St. Francis. Then I think that became later Penrose St. Francis. Talk about how that all came into being and why the need for an air medical program. We had um, air medical support, if you will, from uh, Fort Carson, from the 571st Mass Unit that was there. But obviously the civilian side was secondary to what they had to do on post. And so that was um, an issue with it. Also the time it took sometimes to activate them could be an issue. And at the time, the mast unit didn't necessarily always fly with somebody at like a paramedic level. And so um, it was just the inconsistencies around that that was part of it. The other thing was St. Francis was a sister hospital to St. Anthony's in Denver. And oh. so what we wanted to do for quite a while was to get St. Anthony's to go ahead and put a satellite program down in Colorado Springs and just operate it. I mean, they were clearly the experts and everything else. But there was um, some issues between the, the two CEOs. Um, one of the things to understand about St. Francis at this time is that uh, I think I was about 26. The CEO of the hospital was probably about 29 and our chief of staff was about 29 or 30. And, and the reason for that was St. Francis had been operated by an elderly nun and they had brought in a fresh graduate from um, a MHA program to go ahead and help. And then she decided to retire and he was given the opportunity to go forward, which was great. Uh, a very, very brilliant man. But he was in that position. This was a Catholic hospital that was sort of dying. I mean, it just, it, it was the smallest of the hospital, major hospitals in town. And it was a very, very elderly um, medical staff as a general rule. And um, it needed to be sort of retooled. And one of the things that um, was decided would be a way to be able to differentiate the hospital was to go ahead and specialize in emergency and trauma medicine. And so uh, it became more critical to have an air medical program to be able to support that. Initially, because of the sort of schism between the two hospital systems, we actually went with Roy Morgan and Air Methods to be able to set up the original program. Oh, there. interesting. We were going to be, you know, Air Life of Colorado. And the mother house decided that we were basically acting like, you know, spoiled children and that we needed to work together with St. Anthony's and that we needed to have the same operator and have some economies of scale, et cetera. And so we had to break the contract with Air Methods and we wound up going with Air West helicopters out of Fort Collins that was the provider at the time for, um, for Flight for Life. And then shortly thereafter, Air West went broke, uh, went bankrupt and Rocky Mountain helicopters took over. And so that was our vendor from there on out. Um, but anyway, um, they decided they just need to start their own since they weren't getting the support they wanted out of out of St. Anthony's to put an aircraft there. And I was the closest thing to an EMS administrator that they had in town. So, you know, that I got asked if I would do it. And to be honest, I had thought when I was applying that I was applying for a paramedic position on the helicopter. <laughs> and during the interview, you know, I had that saying come back to me real quickly that it's best to um, keep your mouth shut and have people think you're stupid, then open it and prove it. I realized that the interview was going a strange way. 
And then I found out that what they really wanted me to do was to go ahead and come in and, and you know, help with a, setting up the Fight for Life program and setting up an EMS education program. And I wasn't positive that I really wanted to make one more move back up into management and away from patient care. And I remember having a very conscious thought that, you know, there were some things that I still wanted to do on my bucket list. I, you know, had not been in charge of a major disaster situation in triage. I hadn't done a crike in the field, for example. There were just some things like that, that that flashed through. I went back out, I got on the ambulance. I'd actually gotten somebody to cover for me while I did the interview. Got on the ambulance and within an hour, we got a call from another ambulance that had been involved or had taken care of a patient that had been involved in a motorcycle accident and had slid and hit his head in a helmet, but on a curb really severely. And they were worried about his neck and they needed to get an airway in him because he was unconscious. And so the person that was there, the paramedic had started a crike and then and had actually punctured the trachea, but wound up not wanting to go further with what was there. They weren't sure that they had what they needed. So I came in and, and finished the crike and got uh, it under control. And um, they'd actually, you know, they were just literally like a centimeter away from doing it right. It was just that, that they backed off. So anyway, I put this, this crike in and, you know, struck me interesting that I'd had that thought earlier. <clears throat> and that evening we had the nation's um, boarding house catch fire, which was a, a very large old house in Colorado Springs that was used basically as a boarding house for people with um, issues, you know, either, either uh, handicapped, uh, retarded, um, stuck in a wheelchair, whatever. I mean, there was, you know, it was that type of a, of a place. And we had a couple of fatalities from smoke inhalation that we worked as, as codes and other burns and, um, and I wound up being triaged with it. And I remember when I was done with that call, I just looked up and went, okay, I get it. Well, <laughs> you and got so, what you wished for you. Wow. Yeah. So I, I accepted the position and, and, uh, 1983, we, uh, we got the Alouette and it, uh, it was the start of our program. We, we were actually going with a twin star, um, as our primary aircraft, but it, uh, it took a while to be able to get to that. And, um, and as a result, we, um, just a second, I'll fix something here. As a result of that, we, uh, Started out with uh, the Alouette, which is a beautiful aircraft. I mean, it, you know, anybody who's ever had a chance to be in one, they just climb like crazy and uh, they're not particularly fast. I remember times coming in with a patient and watching the ambulance that had been on scene with us also pass us and continue off into the horizon because we were hitting, hitting a headwind or something, but uh, still a wonderful one. And so the, the picture in the background you see there is, is our Alouette and in fact, the yep. guy in the puppy jacket there is me. Um, but this was our first uh, first ship. And uh, we were only flying single nurse as a guaranteed sort of staffing because of the altitude we were at and because of the altitude we served. I mean, we had a mm. mountain with a restaurant on top of it at 14,110 feet that was 10 minutes off the hill pad. So we, we went single nurse. Um, and then what happened was, was that I was then the relief if they wanted somebody else. And so I carried a, or had a uniform on the back of the door of my office. And if one of the flight nurses gave me a call, then I'd throw it on and go if I could and provide a second set of hands. 
Otherwise, what they would do is they would go ahead and usually bring somebody back from the scene if they needed to have, again, second scene. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask if you did that. Yeah. So did, did Life for Life in Denver started with an Alouette too, didn't they? Yes. Yeah. 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 They had, they had Alouettes for quite a while, actually, and then went yeah. to B2B stars. Yeah. So um, during that experience, you also started a, a multidiscipline uh, EMS Institute and uh, a, a regional communication center. Talk about that. There, there was a real need for continuing education for all of the EMS agencies in the area. We had lots and lots of volunteer EMS agencies in about a five county area around the Colorado Springs area. And um, what we did was we set up a, a program where we were, I, I would utilize paramedics or EMTs in the community that had good education skills. And we would do continuing education at their location. Um, and what that amounted to was we did about 18 classes a month um, in, that, in that five county area. And we would go ahead and basically parse out the recertification program, the renewal program for an EMT during that time, as well as some other materials. But it, it helped. Obviously with the volunteer services, it's very difficult for them if they've got to come into a central location to be able to do it. It's also um, quite an issue if they've got to go ahead and when they're doing their renewal, you know, dedicate a couple of days to it because um, it means time away from work and time away from home. So we decided to set it up that way. And um, there were sufficient paramedic programs at the time. There was a couple up in Denver and there was one that started eventually at the junior college in, in Colorado Springs. So we, we didn't worry much about that. Um, we also did go ahead and give EMT courses. We went and did EMT renewals and we did the IV um, supplement you could do as an EMT at the time. We didn't really have intermediates per se, but we could go ahead and give some advanced skills to EMTs. And so we did some of that type of training. Yeah, yeah. Communication center was really a result of, of just need. Um, obviously with the, the helicopter, we needed somebody to be able to go ahead and dispatch it and take the calls. And after we'd had the helicopter program running for a while, some things started to change in the ground side of town. And there were still two services. And of those two services, they tended to align uh, with where they got their medical direction from. And so the other service was aligned with Memorial Hospital, which was the city hospital in town. And one of the services was more aligned with us. Their medical direction came out of, out of St. Francis. And that service um, was starting to have some problems. They had, had uh, you know, bought a bunch of new equipment five years prior and the equipment was all getting old and they needed to be recapitalized. And it wasn't really clear where those funds were gonna come from. And so I convinced the hospital board that we should add ground to our service and buy this company. We made an effort and an agreement to buy the company. And uh, the owner of the competing service came in with a counter offer the night before and the seller agreed to go ahead and, and sell to them. And I think what he thought was that he had effectively cut us off to where we couldn't get started or couldn't get started for a long period of time. And he would have exclusive um, rights to the all 911 calls during that time. What he wasn't aware of was that I had not wanted to insult the 
um, owners, the sellers of the of the group that was there, but their equipment, quite frankly, was too tired, you know, to be able to deal with. And I picked up a used ambulance, um, wheel coach ambulance out of New Jersey, and it brought it in and fairly quietly gone through the process of being able to get an EMS license because, again, I needed that anyway. Once we would wind up with a service, and so I'd already taken care of that. And I purchased another six ambulances uh, from Wheel Coach, brand new ones, to replace what they had. So we found out that the service had been sold. I just went ahead and got a group of guys to go with me down to Orlando. We flew down, we picked up the ambulances, drove 24 hours at night, you know, at straight, came back, got to Colorado Springs with them, got them each certified, and we were in operation um, five days later. And so, you know, with new equipment. So it worked out well. But that was our uh, our ground ambulance system. It, it wasn't a problem getting another ambulance license. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't for a couple of reasons. I think the first thing is it, the county EMS administrator understood that the intent was for us to buy this other service and that we needed to have a license in order to be able to do it. And so it was easier than trying to transfer their license to give us a license. And then we would basically just move the assets into that that new service. Um, so nobody, you know, anticipated that there would be this situation where um, there would be only one for a week, you know, provider in town. So I think that was a piece of it. The other was it just wasn't that sophisticated of, of a system at the time. It was, you know, really good-hearted people trying to do the right thing, but a lot of this hadn't really evolved, you know, to where we we're what we think of today as a, as a current system. So at the time, you know, since this was quite a while ago, were you mainly doing BLS, ALS types of services, or did you actually uh, put the nurse on board if your the helicopter was down and do critical care? Um, we, we didn't. Um, it was, it was pretty much ALS, BLS uh, yep. with the ground ambulances. Um, there was certainly the potential to be able to do what you're talking about. And I think there were a few isolated times when we would go ahead and do a recovery of a, a patient or something when weather was bad, but it wasn't a, um, a regular piece. Part of that was just because we had a, you know, when you're flying single nurse, you've only got like five people. I mean, that's, that's your staff, you know? And so being able to go ahead and pull a person off the helicopter sure. and come up with a backup and still cover 24 hours is a, a challenge anyway. I was a piece of it. The other thing was, was that um, we were gifted. One of the first nurses that we hired was Carol Wickman. And Carol Wickman came from St. Anthony's, but she was literally one of the first nurses on the very first day that St. Anthony started. And so there was no flight nurse with more experience than, than Carol. And so she was able to provide just some tremendous education um, and support and um, was a just an amazing partner for me all the way through the process with, with Flight for Life. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep moving along because this will be a four-hour podcast if I don't, but it's, it's fascinating uh, learning, you know, how you got started in this. You, you took a reprieve from working in the EMS side of things and became Administrator Development, Management, and Planning at uh, Penrose St. Francis. Um, was this something uh, you felt that you wanted to move uh, up further in administration and 
Why did you? Uh... Yeah, again, it's one of those things that was thrown on me instead of me making a choice to be able to do it. Um, the administrator at St. Francis at the time, Penrose and St. Francis had merged, um, became concerned about the idea of sort of being the, the supplier and the receiver, if you will, of patients through the EMS situation. He was concerned about the, um, we were being very successful. We'd gotten ourselves up to where we were almost 70% of the local EMS 911 calls. And so he was a little concerned about some stuff from a fur trade practice type of a thing. Um, I think unwarranted, but it was still the concern that was there. The other thought was, was that it was time to mend fences and basically work with the other ambulance company a bit. And so he negotiated a deal to sell the ambulance company to the other service in town. It was packaged up together and then all of that was sold to AMR. And in fact, um, it was really kind of the core that got things going with AMR Colorado and why their corporate headquarters are there and everything else. And in fact, uh, Mark Bruning, um, who I used to work with as a paramedic, went on to become president and CEO of AMR. So it was all part of that roll up, but what was left now was the fixed wing program and the education. And my compensation was no longer compatible with an operation that size. And so I was offered the opportunity to come into the, the management system of the hospital. And I've always sort of had a talent for being able to get a kernel of an idea and figure out how to be able to take it forward to make it a reality. Um, that's really been my talent is to, is to, you know, seek opportunities and to exploit them. But that uh, if you put me in a position where I'm just supposed to manage something and, you know, make sure everybody's time cards get put in on time, I would encourage anybody that ever puts me in that position to fire me as soon as possible. It's just not <laughs> so this was sort of a golden opportunity to set up a skunk works and go ahead and figure out what else we could do within the hospital system. It was a time when we were buying points of practice of physicians, offices, and, and uh, you know, hiring their staff and then hiring the physician to cover it. Um, it was the time where we were worried about capitation and what that might look like. And we didn't, you know, know there, there we had construction projects that I helped oversee. Um, and we were also expanding out with a sort of dock in the box, urgent care kind of things into the community. And we needed to do that. And we actually got involved through for several other things. I mean, we, we put together a team of professional health and uh, mental health people that would go ahead and do little small plays at um, schools oh. and look for certain triggers with kids during that, that might suggest that there was a problem that needed to be dealt with. Wow. Um, you know, we had a um, health and wellness type of a program where we would help with uh, education on good diet and all that type of stuff. And so, I mean, it was a, it was a very progressive time and I enjoyed it because it was a chance to, to build. What, what I, what I found fascinating Craig about you is, um, you know, cause I, we had talked beforehand that, you know, I knew you had a, uh, business administration, uh, degree, uh, mm -hmm. in finance and computer information from Regis, but you didn't get that until after all the stuff that you were doing, that people were coming out with master's degrees right. doing so that's incredible yeah. the, the ceo of the hospital um and i i mean we used to refer to it as the dirty little secret because everybody assumed i had a master's degree um 
you know, I never represented that I did, but, uh, you know, let people assume what they wanted to. Um, I was on the, uh, the 24 year plan for, uh, you know, undergraduate degree. Basically part of the problem was, was that I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So, I mean, I, I started out with a um, declared major in music and uh, found out quickly that the music department had significant requirements for time that I just simply didn't have because I was paying all my own bills and living on my own and um, anticipating getting married and, and other things. I just simply didn't have the time to be able to live up to what they wanted. And so I went from there to applied mathematics, which is again, another passion of mine is, is math and uh, really enjoyed that for a while, but started to realize that it probably wasn't where I wanted to make a career out of, that I wasn't cut out for academia and the other choices um, were gonna take me away from the environment that I liked, which was generally a little more rural mountainous type of a, a thing. And so, I mean, I'd be having to look more to a big city and that type of stuff in order to follow that. So I pulled away from that for a while. I went ahead and uh, got involved in computer science for a while just because it was interesting. And, and so part of my, I, actually I, I did animal husbandry for a while uh, as a declared major. I thought now, I wanted to be now that's something I never knew. <laughs> yeah. um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> when I transferred the credits um, to Regis, the person that was there said, so what, what's this fairy sciences? And I said, no, it's farrier sciences. And she said, well, what? And I said, you know, like, like horseshoes and that type of stuff. And she said, oh, PE credit. So I, you know, <laughs> I, it saved me having to do a PE credit. But uh, at any rate, uh, part of my problem was I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, yeah. and then ultimately it just came down to the fact that I wanted to finish it. I just, I didn't want to leave it incomplete. And so I was actually right at the end of the time with, with Penrose St. Francis, um, I mean, literally in the last couple of months and getting ready to move to Utah with Rocky. And I, I took some accelerated classes in order to be able to finish. And uh, I got my degree. And again, nobody's ever asked me for it. The only people that ever asked for my degree was actually the country of Turkey as they were trying to validate my uh, visa in order to be an administrator there. Yeah, and we'll, and we're going to get to that. Um, well, so talk about your time at, at Rocky. Um, I know you were yeah. vice president of corporate development, but uh, you were also involved with the creation of LifeNet, which was the first, I think, community-based uh, program. Yeah, um, I, I was sitting one night thinking about... Um, the inefficiency of the air medical system that we had. Um, you know, the, the general air medical program had a dispatch 24 hours a day to handle one hour worth of work, you know, if you were doing a call a month type of a thing. Um, and, and so we were giving all sorts of busy work to these communicators in order to try to fill the rest of that time. Um, you had a crew that was sitting around, you know, a lot for usually one call or something to that effect. There was a lot of other administrative overhead that was involved. The billing costs, it was, billing was unique and therefore it was usually not done well by a hospital. And um, the, the talent that was needed to understand the type of things that went into the air medical billing generally just wasn't there. The size of our bills at the time were not big enough to be particularly important. And so you'd see people in the billing office chasing you know, a $200,000 account, which made sense. 
as opposed to what might be a, yep. you know, five or $6,000 or ambulance bill at the time. That was my experience at hospital-based yeah. programs. Yeah. And so what I thought was, wouldn't it be great if we could share those redundant overhead things? And so I approached the other air medical programs in the state. And what I found was they all thought it was a great idea as long as it was their dispatch program or their billing or their admin, you know, program director that would go ahead and, and be the one to operate the, the effort. And so it's just the parochialness of the, of the business made it difficult to do it that way. And so I wrote up a business plan that I called LifeNet. And in it, the concept was that an operator could provide other services than just simply an aircraft and pilots that would add some efficiency to a program. If they had a major communications center, if they had a billing office that could bill for the air medical and do that under contract with them, if they could provide education um, services you know, that could be spread across, that this would give a differential advantage to that operator and that they would be able to um, you know, potentially get more business. And that at the nexus of all of those different things that they were offering was the ability to go ahead and provide a pure turnkey to a hospital, which included the medical side. And I took that to Rocky and Rocky had just come out of their bankruptcy. They had new investors. The investors realized that, you know, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you always got. And so they, they saw this as an opportunity to do some retooling. And Rocky had the vision to go ahead and stick with it because I can tell you those first few years, it was not a profit center. Um, we were gifted with an opportunity and that was that um, Creighton University St. Joe's and the University of Nebraska had some uh, desire to try to figure out a solution other than you know, competing against each other every day. The two helicopter pads literally were within sight of each other um, across Omaha. And so um, a couple of very um, far-sighted uh, administrators associated with each of the two programs were willing to go ahead and take the time to sit down and figure out what it could look like. The initial effort was to try to do something that looked more like a, um, a consortium type of a model. And it just got more and more complicated as things changed, as, as ownership changed within a couple of the hospitals, as other parties got to the uh, table. And ultimately it wound up becoming a situation where they decided that the NUCO, as they called it, needed to be just, the Rocky would provide the service. And so we went into a situation where we were providing the medical crews, uh, the dispatch, the billing, everything. It was, it was full turnkey um, with an advisory board made up of the two hospitals. And it was just a critical opportunity because it provided proof the two major academic hospitals were willing to trust us to be able to operate a program. And where we had already had a program they received, um, Rocky received as a result of the bankruptcy, this Eagle uh, program that was in Arizona that became LifeNet there. Um, it was literally a situation where they had a customer that paid off his debt by just giving them the company. Um, and we experimented with a couple of other programs one on Redding, California, and one in Albany, we now all of a sudden had enough medical people that we could be serious about it. And then it expanded from there. I mean, you, you got to believe it's an incredibly easy sale to go into an administrator's office and say, what do you figure you're losing on the flight program this year? You know, million, $2 million. 
how about if we go ahead and take that over, take over the FTEs, provide you with the same aircraft in the same colors, the same name and everything else, and just operate it that way. And we take full risk for um, the expenses of it through billing and, and collecting. And at the time, because of the volumes, you know, we could do that also at a price that was compatible with where they were at. And so it just evolved. And, and you know, as you know, really since the mid nineties to now, there's been extremely few new hospital-based programs. Right. So it, it just was a effective alternative at the time. You know, it was an alternative that I think got um, corrupted a little bit because when you take a look at the, the concept, it basically had pure inelasticity and pricing. You could charge whatever you wanted to charge. And so if you were inefficient or your volumes were low, you just simply raised your charges in order to be able to deal with it. And you gotta believe that is like a unicorn. It's, um, it's incredible for investors to find something that um, you know, has, has that type of inelasticity and that you can just go ahead and raise your, your rates as necessary. And there's some bad players out there, I think, that took advantage of that. But in general, it was mostly just trying to deal with certain inefficiencies in the model. And, you know, if, if you have low volume, you have to raise your charges because Medicare is going to pay what they are. Medicaid is going to pay what they're going to do. Self-pay is going to pay what it is. You can't change it. And when that becomes like 60% of your payer mix, you have to have a escalating charge in order to be able to recover from the commercial group that you've got. And, you know, the, the sad truth is, is if you're going to operate a credible program in a community where you're doing 15 flights a month, you're going to have to charge $45,000, $50,000 as a commercial charge in order to recognize something probably close to around 10 or 11,000 per transport, which is probably what your cost is. Yeah. And, and yeah, we'll get into that with that because I want to talk about balanced billing. I think part of the the issue with that that people uh, will critique it is that if you, there's an oversupply of helicopters, your volumes go down and charges go up too because it's such a heavily fixed cost business. And you know we don't have in the United States like there is in Canada or other places where there's only so many helicopters that are allowed to, to operate. But um, how many, how many uh, programs did Rocky have in the traditional model before LifeNet was started? Do you, do you remember approximately? I don't remember the, I mean, I know that we were at about 60 helicopters. Um, okay. You know, and, and obviously there were some programs that were two or three helicopters and some of that 60 was spares. But um, I mean, if, if I were to have a gut guess, I would say maybe around 40 programs. Yeah, because I know when I first got into the industry, Rocky was quite big. I mean, it's you know so consolidated and goes to my next question. Um, 2002, Air Methods, of course, acquired Rocky. And then you went over uh, to Air Methods um, where you became vice president of uh, business and compliance. Um, talk about that. We used to, you were still involved with the um, uh, alternative models yeah. though too and you consolidated those yeah it, it was an interesting time i'd actually for the last year of the time i was at rocky also had the um, billing and collection service um, oh. reporting to me as one of my sort of extra duties and when i came over to air methods that tracked and followed over and then i hired mark Keane 
to um, go ahead and take that over at, at one point into it. But so it, it was sort of one of those titles that just let me do everything. I was sort of the utility player. I could do whatever position they needed me to for whatever the sort of crisis du jour was. And um, I did the compliance. We got big enough. We got a lawyer. I didn't have to do the compliance anymore. I did the billing. We got big enough. We got the right person there to be able to do it. So basically, I had a career path that was try to work yourself out of everything you're doing so somebody else <laughs> got the job. But there was no, never any lack of opportunity to, to go ahead and, and chase something. And I deliberately avoided the title of um, business development because that tends to have a very sales type of, a, of an orientation to it. So the corporate development was building the corporation, figuring out what um, more we could do, what, what were opportunities for improving. And, uh, and, and so that's, that, that's what I followed was, was that type of a path. It was again, the same sort of, you know, firefighter, give me an opportunity, chase it, fix it, build it and, you know, move on for a period of time, clinical reported to me, you know, so help wow. set up some management for that. And uh, so it, it was, it was sort of do whatever was asked that day. How, how many LifeNet, when Air Methods took over, how many LifeNet helicopters were there or programs? Do you know? Or can you remember? Yeah, I'd have to, to guess, but... Um, we're probably somewhere around 20. Yeah. And then Air Methods had experimented with some alternatives yeah. beforehand. Yeah, they'd, they'd acquired a couple of companies is what they'd done. They bought Mercy um, Air out of yes, California, California, which was sort of a independent program in the way it was done. And they bought um, Archer Medical, which was a consortium at the time. Um, St. Louis. And so, yeah. And so they had those two entities that were um, up and operational and owned by Air Methods. So they were an alternative, if you will, at that point, um, at least alternative ownership. And... I think what LifeNet brought the realization of and why Rocky was an attractive acquisition for the, the folks at Air Methods. Remember, Air Methods had just recently become a publicly traded company at that time. That's right. And I think what they were interested in was that by putting that all together, they were now a very legitimate sort of coast to coast type of a thing because we had our bases out in Albany and places like that with, um, with uh, LifeNet. And that it showed that this could be something on a, a national scale instead of sort of a local one-off type of a thing. And so then the first thing that we had to do is we had to figure out how to bring that all together. I mean, we had three different patient reporting things. We had completely different communication centers. We had um, Rocky had already invested in the one in, in Omaha, which made it a, a reasonable one to work with. Um, Mercy had a really good facility to be able to do billing and collections out of. Um, and so we, we basically did that. Um, um, the one out of, of Missouri that we were talking about, Archer Medical, had an amazing um, aviation group that was there. And so the DO and the DOM both came from, from Arch. Um, and it just it really was a neat opportunity to try to bring that together. But I, I got to tell you, it was also a situation where everybody had extreme pride in their own systems. Yes. And it took a while to be able to negotiate a, a common platform. 
I've always felt that about air methods, you know, because later with uh, acquisition of corporate jets and OmniFlight, I mean, just merging all these cultures is incredible. Um, but I think you at the time, were you taking kind of the best out of each of these areas and trying to put it together into one? Yeah, that was a big piece of it. I mean, yeah. and, and fairly standard sort of facilitator practice. I mean, the first thing you do is you you get the three groups to define a mission statement, you know, and, uh, um, and then once you've got that in common, then it's a little easier to move on. And then you go ahead and you wind up with a common value statement so that everybody sort of agreed to what that is. And then if you use those as your principles, then you use that as the filter against what it is that you want to accomplish. And if you spend time getting the people to where they know each other and they're comfortable with each other, then it's easier to be able to talk about best practices. And, and, and yeah. basically that's what we did. Yeah, having done mergers uh, myself, I know how difficult that is, but how rewarding it is when you can get it all together. So you, you moved on in 2006 up to the senior team at Air Methods and responsible for corporate and international development. What types of things were you working on then? Um, part of our problem was Air Methods was getting so big. You talked about the acquisitions and everything else that, um, I mean, we had to make two passes at uh, buying OmniFlight with uh, Hart Scott Rodino, the federal antitrust group that has to go ahead and evaluate something like that and decide whether or not you're becoming a monopoly or not. And basically we were able to go ahead and go forward with the acquisition of OmniFlight, but with a sort of background statement of, you don't have room to do this again. And so we started finding ourselves in a position where growth had to be organic and that um, the likelihood of, an, of another big um, acquisition was unlikely. There was a chance for some small tuck-ins in different places, but a, a big one was less likely at least. And so we started looking at what else we needed to do. Air Methods got into tourism. They went ahead and they bought Sundance helicopters yes. out in Las Vegas. Yes. And they also bought Blue Hawaiian out in Hawaii. And, you know, the thought was, was that that would be a great sort of farm camp, if you will, for pilots because we could go ahead and get these guys and they'd be flying the, the line with one of the tourism places. And then, you know, in our own arrogance, we thought, and then of course they'd want to come over to be EMS pilots as soon as an opportunity, you know, got there. We found out was uh, that wasn't the way it worked. You know, these people, they liked what they were doing. They liked the job they had. They liked the fact that they were constantly flying during their shift instead of maybe getting a chance to have a flight out of every three, you know, shifts that they worked or something like that. Um, they were compensated reasonably well and they got big tips, you know, so it, it just, it turned out not to be quite so much that it did though, however, because of the type of fleet and the fleet size and everything else continue to have some advantages for, for the company, but it was a, an attempt at diversification. The other diversification that we looked at was international. And so I had with Rocky done a couple of things that were international. I had worked with a project that we did with Albert Einstein Medical Center in Brazil. And this was back in like um, 95. And we um, brought a, an aircraft in, a BKN, in order to be able to support them and support during the time that the um, there was a very large international boat race that was happening at the time and support that. So we worked with a partner there. 
again, the problem was that there just wasn't the type of insurance systems in place to be able to make sense of it from a pure commercial standpoint, um, at least at the size that we were anticipating. And so eventually we wound up just bringing the aircraft back and, and stopping that program. At the same time, we were working with an entrepreneur um, associated with uh, National Airlines down in uh, Chile. And so I was going back and forth to Chile fairly regularly, trying to help set up a program there. Um, it the stories around that are incredible. I mean, um, I basically got hijacked by a group of people at one point that uh, represented themselves as who I was supposed to be working with. And we found out that we were sort of married to two groups down there. Um, again, a long story to try to get there, but we wound up having to go ahead and uh, get lawyers involved and, and uh, you know, sneak Russ Spray and myself out of the country about Christmas time <laughs> wow. that year. I, I came back down after it had been all cleared up. Just a fun story. I'm sitting on the airplane and it's taking longer than expected for the door to open up. And the door finally opens up and a person comes in who's in what appears to be a military uniform, shoulder boards, you know, scrambled eggs, all that kind of stuff on his shoulders. And uh, he talks to the flight attendant who then points at me. Oh, and, uh, no. This is good. So anyway, he walks over to me and he says, uh, you Vice President de Rocky Mountain. And I said, uh, yes. And he said, come with me, jail. I said, no jail. You know, I, mean, I was scared to death. I think I'm on United. I, you know, I haven't gone through protocol. I think I've still got, you know, protections as a U.S. citizen because I've not actually come into their country yet. You know, and, and he said, no jail. And I said, no jail, you know. And the person next to me said, he's trying to say your name because the Y is a J sound and in Spanish. Oh, 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 oh. that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah but, uh, anyway, I'd, I'd done that. And so I just already had some experience around it. And as we got into things at that time, we were approached by several folks, some folks from India, folks from China, some folks from uh, Turkey, um, some folks from Sweden that were interested in seeing what could happen. And so um, I started focusing on those and we, we started looking at potential for acquisitions and we wound up with a partner in Turkey, Bashara Holdings, Ferdi um, Yildiz, uh, a very, very sharp and innovative man. And um, we set up a joint venture to be able to go ahead and, uh, and go forward. Um, would you like me to get into the stuff about Turkey? Yeah, because you what that was 2013, right? That you yeah. uh, became the CEO of the joint venture. Right. Now, technically, at that point, I left Air Methods because um, the joint venture was a separate company. The company was 51% um, owned by um, Bashara Holdings oh. and 49% by, by Air Methods, which has some significance. The one thing it did was it allowed uh, majority ownership by a, a Turkish entity, and that allowed the air carrier certificate to be able to be legal. You couldn't have an air carrier certificate in Turkey or in most uh, EU nations if you had more than 50% ownership by a foreign entity. And so when we set up the air carrier certificate there for Helistar, that was one of the, the necessities to be able to deal with it. So it was, again, a separate company. I wound up um, you know, being seconded or 
really more officially. Just I, I resigned from Air Methods and wound up being the CEO of the of the joint venture. Oh, I, I thought you still were with Air Methods. So I didn't realize that. It, it comes down to sort of how you have to do it officially and what you don't do. Air Methods was sort of the pay agent for it at the time because I still was paid in U.S. dollars in the United States. I, I got benefits through them through a back contract through Telestar to Air Methods because we had to be very careful about how that was done to be legal. Um, there was foreign tax balancing that had to be done between the two corporations. And so there was a technical way that I was still attached to Air Methods so that I could do all of that. And at the same time, have sufficient arm's length relationship that I reported to a board that was made up of Air Methods and Bashara Holdings, um, as opposed to reporting to, you know, the normal group. Now, the fact was, at, at least one point in time, um, Aaron Todd was the chairman of the board of the new Helistar. So, I mean, it seemed like it was all the same, but... Uh, Again, it was technicalities to be able to have a foreign corporation. So what are the types of things you did there? I know you were, you were an Augusta service center. Yeah. 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 Special Holdings was, and um, the, um, it was called Con Aviation was the name of the um, aviation component of what was going on. And part of what happened when we first got there, um, and this was actually even before I'd moved to Turkey, we knew that the EMS contract was coming up. It was going to be like um, 17 aircraft for the for the country of Turkey, EMS ones. And it was going to be a, uh, a three-year initially contract. Um, the current operator that was there had bid the three-year contract the first time at 150 million euros um, and was operating fewer aircraft. And so, you know, the message that we'd gotten was that they wanted more aircraft for basically less money. And so we, we did something that was sort of a, a piece of sort of game theory, if you will, almost. I needed to be able to get a air carrier certificate that was operating and operating at a reasonable scale in order to be able to bid on the, the contract for, for Turkey. And I also wanted to just, um, if you will, set the table, the scale for what might be happening as far as bidding on it. And so there was an opportunity to bid on a utility contract with the electrical authority in Turkey. And this was to monitor 150,000 kilometers of power line and do um, video stills, coronal, um, et cetera, type of, of uh, infrared, you know, stuff with it. And we bid it with 119 koalas instead of, you know, cheaper, smaller aircraft that most people would do. Um, and part of the reason that we felt we could make that work if we wound up with a contract was that the 119 koala was able to go ahead and haul basically everything up at the same time. And we'd be able to make one pass per wire instead of four or five passes per wire. Oh, interesting. So we could get some efficiencies out of that. But we also bid it reasonably rich because what I wanted, since it was going to be an open bid and people were going to know what it was, was I kind of wanted the people that were going to bid on the EMS license um, to go ahead and think that, uh, you know, we were an American company and we, we wouldn't be competitive, you know, that we'd just be expensive. And uh, this was all with, you know, the counseling and advice of Ferda. And um, 
<laughs> we wound up with it. So all of a sudden we've got this contract now to be able to deal with it in something that was, I had no experience in utility. I heard I didn't have experience in utility. Our methods didn't have experience in utility. And I found out that it was one of the largest utility contracts that was ever let. So um, with the help of Augusta, because we needed to do some TC type of stuff in order to be able to um, deal with some of the changes we did to the 119 to be able to make it happen, uh, we were able to get the, the contract and do it and, and, and cover it. So that was our start. It also wound up because we were unsuccessful in getting the EMS bid. Um, my primary amount of business was, was doing that while we were over there. The EMS contract was kind of interesting. As I said, the, the old bidder, the one, the one that had been there before the incumbent and the one that had started with Turkey, their contract had been 150 million euros. We bid in probably about 20 million euros below that for more aircraft and thought that that was a really good bid. Um, and the incumbent bid almost identical to our bid as far as we had. And then somebody else who was not in the business and didn't have any experience doing EMS went ahead and bid 90 million euros, which wasn't sufficient to be able to, to do it. Yeah. But they got the contract and they wound up having to do a lot of adjustments. Um, you know, they, they got in trouble for doing sort of garage built uh, interiors for their aircraft and non-certified interiors. And um, ultimately the person that was the director wound up going to prison. Um, so it was, it was kind of an ugly thing, but um, we didn't get the contract. So then we started spending more time working on opportunities of acquisition. Air Methods had gone ahead and, and made a deal to be able to buy a company that was providing services in Finland. Um, we had looked seriously at one in Sweden. We looked at seriously one in Norway. We looked at um, opportunities. There were, um, oh, in Italy and Ireland and et cetera. And the problem that it kept coming back to was the way that a US public corporation had to deal with the finances. And because they didn't have controlling interest in the company, they couldn't consolidate the financials. And what that meant was anytime Hillistar would go ahead and incur debt of any sort by acquiring an aircraft, buying a company, whatever it was, 49% of that debt would show up on the balance sheet of their methods, but none of the revenue, none of the sales, none of the expenses of it could be consolidated under their financials. And that could yeah. be explained in you know, notes, but the problem is, again, people looking at the company tended not to see that much detail. It just looked like Air Methods was invested in something that was costing them a lot of money and incurring a lot of debt, but not giving them anything back. Um, and so that was a problem unto itself. But you also, if you remember at that time, Air Methods was also challenged with a very activist investor um, who was going ahead and challenging Air Methods, even took out a, a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal challenging the, the decisions that they were making and suggesting. Yes, they I remember that. Yeah. Company. So it was not a good time for our methods to have anything that just challenged you know, the, the value of the company and, and what it looked like. And since we really had difficulty trying to solve that problem, there, there were some ways we could have, but it just, it wasn't happening. And so um, I called for a meeting of the shareholders and basically we structured a situation where our methods um, um, sold their interest to Busher Holdings. And uh, at that point, I needed to decide whether I was gonna go ahead and stay. Um, 
And it was just, it was the right time for me to come home. Um, it turned out that politically it was also a very good time for me to come home because a month after I, I left um, was when the bombing happened in Ankara. And shortly thereafter, the attack on the airport at Ataturk. And it just, it was, it was there during a very wonderful time. And it's probably good that I left when I did. Yeah, I remember you uh, talking about that and some of the, the politics that were going on in, yeah. in Turkey. And so, but what a fascinating experience yeah, to have that was, kind of international. And, and you brought, didn't you, you brought to MTLI somebody from the company too, didn't you, one year? I did. I, I brought basically my COO, who was the daughter of the, of the, the yes. partner yeah. and uh, a brilliant, brilliant lady. I mean, very young. They're probably one of the smartest, you know, people I've, I've ever been around. She's really smart. And it's offered other opportunities. I mean, if you remember George from China, um, you know, I was working on a project in China and um, Gengang or George as he's known, um, came over and, and went through the class and wound up getting the highest score we had that year yeah. um, on the test. I, I continue to work with George. We're working on the attempt right now to be able to put together a school in China that is very similar to MTLI. Um, oh, wow. Obviously, COVID and some of this other stuff has slowed the project down, but we've we've he's working for a person who is quite wealthy who wants to be sort of a benefactor to EMS and is willing to help this thing get started. And so once things settle down a little bit, I think we'll probably get, get more involved there. And then I've been involved with a gentleman that's been working very hard to try to get an air medical program going in India. He uh, did a... a a short start with um, AMGH or, you know, what's, what's um, GMR now. And basically because of the sale of, of AMGH and some other things that were going on, it sort of fizzled and they brought the aircraft back and he's now working to try to get another partner in there. But um, I continue to help him just on a pro bono basis to try to get things yeah. out in operational in, in that, India. That's fascinating. What's, Jump forward here. So in 2016, you formed your own company, the Yale Group, um, uh, out of U Utah, where you live, as the president. Uh, talk about the kind of work that you're doing and um, some of the consulting you've done with clients. I know uh, you pulled me in on uh, one project, along with uh, Clinton Burley from uh, HealthNet, uh, to talk about consortiums and how they operated. So, uh, but talk about Talk about what you've been doing. Well, again, my, my, my basic skill set and what I offer to clients is I solve problems or I take advantage of opportunities. You know, I help them figure out how to be able to do that. And so, um, you know, they get somebody with 45 years worth of experience in, in, in EMS um, and they get it by, by the hour. So, you know, that's attractive to, to hospitals are going through things. A couple of times I've been asked to sort of be an interim um, as they're looking for a new leadership. I, my personal belief as far as interims go is just that it's not a great thing to do because if you're a good interim, then you just have one more separation at the end of that time. And you know, if you're a bad interim, then obviously it's a bad experience for everybody. What I would rather do is accept a position as a coach during that time and work with the leadership that exists in the program through the time it takes them to decide whether they're going to advance somebody within their own organization sure. or go to the outside and help it. And I'll help them with the, 
the selection process. But again, I, I just, I don't like the idea of being an interim. I'm much happier being a coach. And, and I think one of the things that happens then is we all tend to be a little blind sometimes to who that person is in our own organization that's got an amazing skill set. And just quite frankly, because they've not been asked to do it, you miss the opportunity to have that person. And so again, being a coach for the you know people that are there to help them get through that period frequently allows that person to come to the surface. And so I, I like to do that. So that's one role I've played. Um, as you said, I've helped in a couple of cases trying to work on uh, the expansion of programs into consortiums, situations where again, they're trying to figure out how to get some economies of scale, how to be able to um, improve the, the situation. You, you can't um, collude you know, in business. And so it's, it's a delicate line to walk when you're dealing with two programs that already exist that are operating within a, a region because obviously some of the efficiencies that you're looking at um, are the fact that you're reducing one of the players in the area and you can make decisions relative to placement of aircraft and that type of stuff. You might not be you know, continuing to compete with two aircraft in the same county that you might have before. And you have to be careful because what you don't want to do, you don't want to, again, during the process while you're working on the consortium, um, do something that, uh, you know, would, would be collusion or market uh, distribution. So, it, again, having had that experience, having had a lot of uh, counseling from lawyers and stuff over the years as we did mergers and acquisitions, it gives me the opportunity to do that. Um, I have a client that I'm working with that... Um, um, is Intermountain Healthcare here out in, in Salt Lake. Uh, it's sure. incredibly enjoyable to work with a client that I don't have to get on an airplane to go see. But uh, Intermountain's a, a large program, the Life Life program. They're, um, you know, have multiple uh, rotor and fixed wing aircraft. Um, they have a CJ4 that they use for longer distances and organ procurement and that type of thing. And uh, I've been working with them and we've been continuing to expand and uh, they're going to take delivery of a, a 604 Challenger here, uh, hopefully oh. this next, actually hopefully this month, um, that's set up with two critical care bays in it. And the Challenger is capable of basically going anywhere in the world. And so, you know, it's going to be a, another sort of market that we're going to spend some time trying to develop is the international market. There's a lot of opportunity because of growth that's happening here in the Salt Lake area and a lot of international companies that are based here that we believe that it's going to be a reasonable um, opportunity and it's consistent with the mission that Intermountain has. And the most recent um, opportunity I've had with them is to be part of their due diligence team for the acquisition of Classic. I mean, it was announced. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. The close, um, you know, is, is likely to happen here uh, this summer. And um, you know, it's a, it's a big expansion, um, 29 extra aircraft that come in with a classic situation. So it, even though classic will operate as classic and continue to be a separate entity under the you know, separate enterprise under the way things that are there, you're now talking about um, between the two certificates, Mountain Healthcare being a major, um, you know, vendor now, if you will. Um, and they, they are a bit of a vendor with this acquisition because classic has provided aircraft for hospital-based programs. And they also have the contracts with uh, Puerto Rico and uh, Haiti. Oh. So it it, um, it really, really stretches 
if you will, um, what Intermountain's been involved in. They're going to um, want to see growth and they're gonna to wanna to see an opportunity to capitalize on that. And because of the, the way things work, um, that even though classic, if you will, is, is a LLC type of a structure, um, as long as the work that they're doing is beneficial to the mission of Intermountain Healthcare, it makes them a not-for-profit by virtue of the transference of that. And so there's gonna be a change in business attitude as it deals with it, um, as it relates to charges, as it relates to need, as it relates to where they put aircraft. Um, but it, it literally puts Intermountain in a position to be a not-for-profit vendor. And I think that's gonna be an interesting evolution in the industry. Yes. Um, yeah, there, Intermountain really seems to be on the move in a lot of ways. I think people were surprised by that, you know, because it was very different uh, the, of anything we've seen in the, in the industry. And uh, they were also, you know, made news here in the Midwest with the potential merger with Sanford. Right. And then that, uh, I think, I think, I don't know, all the details went sour because the CEO of Sanford left. Um, and uh, it fell through, but I thought, wow, that's very interesting. That's quite a geographic area. Um, it's, a, it's a very entrepreneurial um, organization. And uh, Mark, Dr. Mark Harrison, who's the CEO of it, yep. has just intense vision. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, another thing that your watchers might be interested in sort of looking up is Civica RX. And I mean, this is a situation where Intermountain said, you know, we don't like what's happening as far as the shortages with the various uh, medicines and that type of stuff and the, you know, grossly inflated charges and whatever. And he decided, fine, we're just going to become our own pharmaceutical company. Yeah. I mean, I'm not talking compounding. I'm talking about actually producing the, the, the ones that are out there, mostly generics, and wound up with some other hospital part, senior hospital partners to um, help get it together. And I think something I read the other day is like 200 hospitals now that participate getting their, their medications through Civic RX. Wow. So, I mean, it's just, he is really good about thinking outside of the box. And uh, there's just a, he's got a management team that I am super impressed with every day that I work with them, but they have a entrepreneurial flair to them that is amazing. Yeah. So how in general have you, like uh, being out on your own in the consulting world. I know consulting sometimes can be feast and famine. Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's certainly the advantage that, uh, you know, I, I planned on retiring when I was um, about 60. And so I financially had set myself up so that when this um, stuff finished with Turkey, I chose basically to, again, go out on my own because I didn't really need to do anything else. And so it's really nice to be able to pick your projects, pick who you're going to work with yeah. and that type of thing. Um, the thing I would say that's the downside to it is I'm so used to being able to be the person who builds something and puts it together that the, the part about being a consultant is you basically give your opinion and then you're expected to walk away. And, you know, I find myself frequently involved in these projects where all of a sudden I have to remind myself that, you know, mm -hmm. I don't work for them directly. I cannot make this decision. Yeah. You know? And and that's a little difficult because when, when the juices get flowing, that's where I want to be. 
Um, yeah, knowing you, I can I can see that. Um, yeah, but but you're also yes. a very good coach too, and that's 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 an important skill um, to have. Do you, do you work with other consultants in the industry when you're working on projects? Do you? Yeah, I do. I, I part of what I set up Yale Group to do, and and even the name, I'll have to share with you in a second what happened with, but. Um, I was talking with a couple of folks that were um, actually international members of Ames. Um, um, and we were talking about the fact that there really is sort of a opening or an opportunity here that um, there is one consulting group that really has a name in this area. And I mean, Fitch, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to deny that they've got a really strong um, product and mm -hmm. uh, but there's capacity and, and I mean, it, it's not that they're, they have the capacity for everything or they're, they're necessarily there. And so I also felt that what we were offering was a little bit unique. And so um, basically the way we set the, the system up is it's an LLC so that I can have foreign parties involved if I need to, we can go ahead and move it up to a different type of corp if we have to at some time in the future. But the ability for me to be able to subcontract to somebody and them to then have, by virtue of the fact that's going through the Yale group, have the insurance, the errors and emissions, that type of thing, liability insurances to be able to do it, offers an opportunity to people who would like to work on a project but don't want to make a career out of consulting. It also allows people that have um, a consulting situation, for example, um, you know, you have Michael on. Yes, uh, in a like previous episode, mm -hmm. um, we had a client that they wanted to be able to use them. The problem is, is that they have a very strong, uh, difficult program to go through in order to be able to get a contract with them, and um, it can take months to be able to get a contract through and approved. And so, by me subcontracting with Michael, it's still the Yale Group which has a contract with this client that's providing the service, and then Michael sub to me. And, you know, my goal is for him to get his own contract with this, with this uh, client. A normal consulting group would think that to be crazy because what you don't want to do is, you know, introduce another consultant to your client and have them basically push you out of the way. I'm at a place in my life where, in my mind, that's a success. I think that's wonderful if they get a contract with them. And, my, you know, my client is now benefiting by having something with somebody that I I directed the doors because I thought it was a good person and a good consulting situation. And so, you know, it's a platform to be able to work from. I was yeah. initially, again, in these conversations with uh, the other people that will likely be subcontractors at some time and, and, and go on and expand in what they're doing. Um, talking about having something that was sort of a, a grand name, you know, whatever that would be. But um they actually pushed me towards the idea of Yale Group because they said, you know, it's a known brand. You're known because of just how long you've been in the industry and that there's a certain value in being able to go in, you know, and say that it's the Yale Group. And uh, although that sounds to me incredibly egotistical, um, it's actually proven to be a, a useful brand. Yeah. Just as long as it's not the jail group, right? Yeah. Well, actually, it's a, it's a funny coincidence. My, I mentioned earlier that my dad was a hospital CEO. Yeah. When he retired, he set up a consulting practice they called the Yale Group. So one of the advantages I have is this is a group that's been in common use um, in the marketplace going back to the, you know, 
seventies. So wow, interesting. So I, I want to talk about um, some of the association work and other things you've been involved with. You you've been involved with uh, AIMS or the Association of Aeromedical Services. Uh, from back when it was called the American Society of Hospital-Based Emergency Air Medical Services. Whoever Very came good. up with that name? I mean, Ash Beams. Um, uh, were you one of the founding members of the association? Not directly. I mean, the founding group, you know, got together, I believe, in San Diego and um, started out with sort of an AMTC type of a thing. Um, it wasn't what it was called at the time. But... Uh, I understand from the people there were talking card tables and you know that type of thing was the, the original one and you know a dozen or more people but it was a, a small group that came up with the concept um nina merrill who had been with the program in long beach uh came on as the first executive director right. and um, their second uh, meeting that they had um was a little bit larger and i got involved with the third uh, conference, and that's when I started to get involved. I see. Um, shortly, it, again, it, it also dealt with sort of who the presidents were. Joe Tai was the first one first. that was there, but then you had Carl come in, and Carl was at Colorado Connections, and then you had um, Dan Reich come in. Dan Reich was the program director for St. Anthony's, and Dan basically called me up one day and said, uh, I'd like to get you involved with um, Ames and uh, I'd like to have you chair the finance and reimbursement committee of, of Ames. And you got to remember at the time, I think I was like about 20, 29 years old. I thought, oh my God, there's got to be somebody who's more of an expert in this than me. And, uh, and now, you know, uh, I decided I needed to be involved. And so I got involved and then shortly after that wound up on the board. So I've, I've been involved, involved with Ames since its very beginnings, but not the beginning. Yeah. And you've been on the board three different times, right? Right. You know, I've turned out three times. Um, <laughs> and uh, I've, I've enjoyed it all. I, 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 you know, I think the organization's mission is appropriate. I think there's a need to have a voice for the industry. Um, you know, it's certainly had its challenges and, and we can talk about that. But, um, you know, I, I think that in the aggregate the, that Ames has, has helped with innovation and was there at the right time for a lot of things that needed to be done. And I believe it can be, you know, can be great, so. Yeah, the, um, uh, how, have, how have you seen, you know, in general, the association change over the years and what, what, how do you think the current administration is doing? Yeah. You know, one of the problems that I think, this is Craig speaking, but I think that Ames has always struggled a little bit with um, schizophrenia around its, identi its identity. That there's a period of time with Ames where it was all about sort of supporting industry growth. There was a period of time where it was about trying to figure out if it could be sort of more legitimate with more research and that type of a thing. There was a period of time when uh, we wanted to be all things to all people, you know, and we would have the big conference, but then we'd have a mid-year conference that was more business related and what mm -hmm. was going on. Um, one of the interesting things about Ames is that it tended not to focus enough on the clinical aspect of what was going on. It was sort of an organization that 
acted like it was a trade organization. And as a result, it tended not to um, meet enough of the clinical needs. And so you had things like the National Flight Nurse Association, which of course has evolved since then, pull away. That was really the first group to go ahead and say, look, you know, we're fine, we're happy, we'll be part of Ames, we'll participate in the conference and everything, but we really need somebody focusing on our profession. And so they went ahead and set up and, and that was sort of part of the first schism. And then you had things like the like AMPA form because again, their needs just weren't being met within the structure that we had. And then you had the communicators and the paramedics all you know set up their own organizations. And for a while, again, although they were all separate, we sort of acted like we were a federation. Um, not that, that we ever accepted that, but I mean, that was really sort of the, the model that existed was it was a, a collaborative entity of these with, with AIMS. But again, AIMS, uh, partially because of who wound up on the boards and everything else, continued to take a bit of a paternal attitude towards those organizations. And as the operators became more and more invested in the organization and the needs of it, um, you started having the operators have more community-based models than they had hospital-based models. And for them to basically sit quietly on the sidelines um, made no sense for them. And so you started to see things like the, the um, AMOA, you know, oh, yeah. with operators. And, and so AIMS wound up becoming in a position of trying to sort of juggle the relationships with all of these and trying to be all things to all people were starting to become, you know, less efficient being uh, what was there. I, I think Aims a lot there. had to do with, um, uh, you know, cause when I was, I was on the board for several years too, and then was yeah. and currently on the board. Um, but the, um, uh, when I was the president now called chair, there was, uh, you know, I think I thought a misunderstanding, you know, because Ames is really is a trade association. Trade association is is that your company is a member. And right. then all the other associations were societies. And when you look at it from an association perspective, and there was kind of a misunderstanding on who, what that meant, uh, right. as and especially in sharing some of the proceeds from uh, the Air Medical Transport Conference. Um, and then, of course, in um, you know the blow up in it was two thousand nine with um, uh, the uh, act um, or you know patient first group breaking off. I think those were some of the most contentious uh, board meetings that I was at because I was the past president chair at the time, um, and then you saw a real split over. You know what became the, the the catalyst was the CON in uh, North Carolina. Right, yeah. um, uh, so, um, have have you been involved at all with ACT at all? Have you with Association of Critical Care Transport? Have you done? Not not really. I mean, obviously, I, uh, yourself included. I have a lot of friends that have yeah. been involved in it, and I've never been particularly adversarial towards ACT. Yeah, um, I just you know makes my heart ache because we're not big enough to really be, you know, split off at that level. And I really hope for the day that we can figure out how to be able to get back under the same tent. Um, and I think there, there are reasons to do that and, and, and opportunity there. 
because um, we're a small industry and we need to have a strong voice. And I, I think that a strong voice comes from being more united in what we do. I think ACT proved and has proven that there needed to be serious focus on the clinical side of things, yes. uh, patient quality and all those. And uh, those were emphasis that needed to happen. And, um, you know, I think that, I think that Ames has a important role. I think that ACT has gone ahead and established a area that needs to be focused on. I think, again, each of the societies you talked about it are incredibly important for the, the professions they've got to be able to happen, but we need to figure out how to get that all under a tent again, because um, again, our, our, our voice is weakened when we split the, the message. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been singing that same song, having been involved with both organizations and on the board of both. Um, I think ACT has done incredibly well with uh, clinical standards, uh, the mm -hmm. standards um, uh, that they, they publish. I, I think we're it's difficult. And, um, you know, I, uh, my former position with Lifelink, we kept a membership in both organizations and, you know, I'd get criticized from both sides. Um, and it was, it, it was difficult trying to justify because, you know, they were fighting each other on the Hill over language and bills. And I even, um, had a meeting actually in Minneapolis, uh, to, bring the uh, executive committees of both organizations together. And, you know, I think there is a lot of miscommunication with stuff. So we'll see. I mean, I'd like to see it all under 110. I mean, if you were to create this from scratch, you wouldn't have all these individual associations with medics and stuff. You know, if you look at the American Hospital Association, you have right. groups underneath that, but it's hard to go back on that. You've well, also... Oh, go ahead. A real miss. No, I was just going to say, I think there was a real misfire in the leadership um, at Ames at the time, basically the time that, that forced AMOA to form, because you remember there was a very strong challenge coming up to the industry. There was the um, NTSB that was going to focus, you know, for an entire week on our, our industry. Um, and there was uh, um, the, having to report to Congress and have a, a talk there. And basically the message that was given to the operators is sort of, don't worry about it. We've got it under control. We're gonna go ahead and represent everything. And that's a really scary message to send to people that literally have billion dollars invested in the industry. That it's sort of, go ahead and sit on the sidelines. We'll take care of this. Um, and, and I think that that, um, that general attitude as it comes to dealing with everybody is has got to stop. There's got to be collaboration if you're going to be able to make these things work. Right. Yeah. I mean, when I was uh, president chair, it was the CEO group was mm -hmm. what that was called before right. it broke off as a, as a MOA. Um, you've been involved with uh, the Medivac foundation international since uh, 2016 with uh, uh Talk about that experience and what, what types of things you've been working on or the foundation has been. Tends, tends to be where I land after I term out of the board. I, I've been a, <laughs> a fair, fair and far also um, during gaps were there, fair and yes. far being the predecessors to yes, right. Quebec International. But um, again, it just it's an area of, of passion of mine. I mean, I, I think that research is critical for our industry. Um, it's something that it's been difficult to get enough 
um, both financing and, and direction to be able to do sort of some of the goals that we've got, but I think we're getting better at that. Um, under uh, uh, Johnny's leadership, uh, we spent some time and really looked at what it was, was our mission in that. And that through that became the uh, uh, taking care of our own, realizing that that was a significant part of what needed to be done within the industry, that that was a sort of an unserved area. Um, Howard Ragsdale's leadership has you know, expanded on that and this, the podcast, or not podcast, but um, webinar type of things that have been done around the taking care of our own have been, I think, really good. Yeah. Obviously, COVID has made it to where that's one of our few tools to be able to deal with it. But the whole issue of, of just good mental health in the industry is incredibly important. You know, when you look at the suicide rate in EMS, it's just, it, it's embarrassing besides being horrible. Um, and so I think that that's a good focus, you know, for the uh, for the foundation to be able to do. And then there's just the, the rest of the mission around education. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you're, you're hitting three of my hot buttons there. So it's a great place to be and, and yeah. I really enjoy it. And, and under Connie's leadership right now, you know, I think we're going to continue to sail. So, and how how have donations come in? I know there was a big push initially to get people, you know, in the industry. I mean, not only the leaders but the rank and file to give to the right. foundation. How is that going, or is it? Um, you know, part of the part of the issue is is that there has been um, a confused message. It's hard to raise money when your message is sort of, there's a lot of neat things we'd like to do and depending on how much we get, we might be able to do more. I mean, that, that just doesn't grab your heartstrings like something that is you know, a clear focus. Um, the taking care of our own is the easier sale because we can define what it is and what the benefit is and what the, you know, the return value is for the, the folks. Um, we've, we've tended to, as a group, to rely on the internal community, if you will. And, you know, the operators have everybody with their hands out towards them. The manufacturers have everybody with their hands out towards them. And everybody has been stressed financially over the last few years, including um, Ames and Foundation. And so that's one area that there's, there's some issues with. The other piece is, is that we've tended to have reasonable looking numbers, but they're because we've taken on specific projects. You know, and so we'll do a project that Bell is sponsoring, or we'll do one that Air Methods is sponsoring, or we'll do one that GMR is sponsoring, or something like that. And those funds then um, are strictly for that. And so we don't have the ability to sort of go out and seek other creative things. Over the years, they've been able to do a couple of neat studies um, that would help. They, they also did the sort of Air Medical 101 project, you know, which was published in multiple languages and talked about how to be able to set up an air medical program. They've helped sponsor some research around sleep studies and that type of stuff. But um, I think that what we're really working on right now is trying to clean the message so that we've got something that is really a legitimately perceived request to some of the bigger foundations and entities that would be willing to provide bigger money. So. Part of it is we needed to sort of grow up from being the organization that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating, but, you know, funds itself through bake sales and silent auctions to something that is, you know, more of a fairly large corporate foundation. 
in order to be able to fund the opportunities that we have. Yeah, that's great that you're uh, involved with that. Um, uh, one, one area when we were preparing for the podcast, I didn't realize that you were on the board as the professional flight chaplains since 2014. I, I, I know I have talked to, uh, <coughs> excuse me, some folks from that group, but um, tell us what you're, what the group's working on and what their goals are. Uh, Amelie is the um, person who started it. She was a flight chaplain with Flight for Life and in Denver, and, and uh, she is just a force of nature that you can't say no to. And so she asked me if I'd come on the board, and uh, I really appreciated them and appreciated their mission. Um, you know, again, it really fits into this sort of taking care of our own. Um, and the, the flight chaplaincy is secular. It's not, um, it, it's not a religious type of a, of a mission that's there. The idea is, is that if you embed a chaplain with an organization, whether it's the army, a fire department, police departments, any of those type of things, what you provide is a trusted person with skills around being able to help people deal with issues, whether it's, you know, any type of crisis related to work or it's a divorce or it's children or it's whatever, it's having somebody with those skills embedded in the organization and somebody who can watch what's happening and, 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 and also help be a moral compass for an organization. You know, I, I remember talking to, to Rick, previous um, president of Ames, and you know, he, was, he was a general. And I mean, he talked about the value of having a chaplain even in the military because it then provided a, a degree of conscience and, and support you know, for the military as far as their compass, you know, to let yeah. go. So I just, I, I like their mission. I think it's a neat uh, process. The, I thoroughly enjoy the other board members and the chance to be able to work with them. And uh, I think our biggest thing now is just to try to promote the concept enough and get some flight chaplains out there in some of these other hospitals and programs. And how, how many programs actually have a flight chaplain? Yeah, I should have that on the top of my head, but I mean, it's it's less than a dozen that I know of. Yeah. Um, I know of several of the, the bigger programs that are currently looking at it. I know of at least two that have it in their budget, but have not yet found the person. And part of it also is just the training. And that's another one of the big things that the chaplains do is they provide training and continuing education for this because it's a different type of chaplaincy. You know, they, they need to be able to understand what they're dealing with with trauma, you know, and what they're dealing with the uh, um, stress syndromes that are associated with people that are constantly in trauma, you know, and that type of stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's the everyday, I mean, a, a tough flight um, right. that someone comes back from. I know when, um, you know, I was at Duke when they crashed the, the first time. And um, I remember the pastoral care department at the hospital provided the greatest support for our group and me. I mean, it was uh, uh, really... One of, one of my, right. Yeah, one of my roles at Air Methods was to be... Uh, one of the first in any time we had a fatal accident. And I was responsible then for meeting with the families and setting up the memorial services. That's and, right. Uh, you know, there were, there were unfortunately a lot of those. And, um, you know, it was interesting because as you said, if a, if a program or the hospital had a chaplaincy uh, or pastoral area 
it was just a godsend to be able to work with them. Um, and frequently, if they didn't, I had to find somebody with those type of skills to be able to help us get through that that period. I mean, the you know crisis teams that would come in and stuff were good for part of that, but you really needed the empathy that would come through with that type of a group. And so that was really important. And uh, and then personally, you know, part of the the trauma, if you will, of dealing with one of those accidents is that after the service was done and everybody had you know at their closure, you know, then, then I had to process it. And it really, really yes. helped to have yeah. a person that I could go to that could help. I remember me you things. talking at or being quoted at so many of those. That's, uh, um, you uh, also are involved. I don't know how you have time to do all these things. Uh, the National EMS Memorial Service uh, as uh, typically as financial as treasurer. Yeah. So uh Tell us what that's all about. Again, it's, you know, I, I, I have a area of my heart that's really tied to um, the families and the coworkers and all that type of stuff that have to deal with a line of duty death. I mean, the, the person that, that's died is significant, you know, and obviously very important. And I like the fact that we're honoring them as it goes forward. But the truth is, is that memorials and honoring and like this is for the survivors not for the yes the person who died yes and i think it's whether you i mean some of the people for example that we honor um you look at the accident and you go you know that person basically you know committed mass murder and suicide because they made a really bad decision and they you know they, they caused the accident or you, know, you could easily see how it could have been avoided and whatever else. That doesn't change the fact that the mission is still important to be able to deal with. And it doesn't change the fact that their family members and their coworkers and everybody else are grieving. And I think through a memorial service, it's a way of validating that what they were participating in had value and that it wasn't in vain. And the National EMS Memorial Service is the congressionally recognized um, sort of big service to be able to do that. And we deal with line of duty deaths um, in EMS. The police have their memorial, the fire departments have theirs. There just wasn't one for EMS. And so we have that. And and the interesting thing about it is, is that the National EMS Memorial Service works collaboratively with the National EMS Memorial Foundation, which is putting together a brick and mortar Memorial in the Washington DC area, um, which is it's pretty close to happening. Um, and then you've got like the National EMS bike ride. Yes, which, which I've been involved with. Yeah. Right. Participates with the service. And it provides an, an excellent thing because we are limited to only honor line of duty deaths. And we use the PSOB standards to be able to decide who that is. But there are a lot of people who die in our industry that are worthy of honors, but not necessarily a line of duty death. Yes. And so the National EMS bike ride goes ahead and provides a outlet for honoring those people too. And so it's a collaboration between the three. And uh, yeah, I didn't realize, you know, cause I got involved with the National EMS Memorial bike ride. Tammy Chapman, it's always mm -hmm. doing a lot of the picture taking and stuff and said, you know, you got to do this. You like biking. And it was such a moving 
experience to to do that i mean it yeah it's it's bicycling but it's it's in the stops that you make and meeting people in ems and honoring those that were lost um and then meeting some of the family members of, of those that were lost it's um i haven't done the east coast ride which rides into the memorial sure. service but uh i've done the midwest ride but even that is um uh, uh, and incredible. I've told more people to to do that and served on the board for a couple of years too. Um, uh, let's move on to um, an area that uh, I know you know a lot about, which is in the financial area. I, I know you were involved. I'm going to combine these, the negotiated rulemaking, and I don't want to get into all the details with that. That was back in the late 90s. But the big issue now is this balanced billing legislation that was passed right. at the end of last year. And now really the, the process and how this is all gonna be put in place and how it's gonna be done, I believe still January, 2022. Um, and this is affecting many areas of healthcare. It's not right. just air medical, but you know, as you said earlier, you know, the pricing you know, that you could just charge whatever you want, well, that, seems like that's going to be coming to an end or it's uh you know I, I know a lot of the companies now are trying to be in network uh, the programs i've worked at we sort of always did that but i know some of the big national ones you know partially because you're negotiating with every state and every insurance company um but uh what's your thoughts on the whole balance billing thing and how do you think that's going to affect our industry I think one of the one of the important things to understand also it, it it is a recent event that you're seeing some of the big operators go in network as much as they are. Yes. But some of the biggest insurance companies aren't willing to go in network for the operators. In other words, yeah. the operators are making offers and getting silence from the big insurance companies. And I think part of it is they're waiting to see how this plays out. Well, that's what I was wondering if you know if, yeah. if it's going to even the ones that were in network are saying I, I don't want to be in network anymore. Well, it'll be interesting to see how they deal with it. And it, part of it, quite frankly, ties back to what you talked about with the negotiated rulemaking in the, in the late 90s. I mean, the, the problem was, was that we didn't have any data to work with. We had the cost reports from the hospitals, but they were only a, a small sort of picture relative to the air medical because so many of the costs were in other areas of the cost report. And so we didn't have good cost information. There were very few independent programs at the time that had clean financials to be able to work with. And ultimately what we did was we negotiated a slice of the pie that we had to imagine because HICFA couldn't, I mean, HICFA that now became CMS, HICFA couldn't define how much they'd been paying. So yep. we, we, we sort of imagined a pie um, that HICFA said, eh, you know, yeah, probably. And then we got a slice of it, but it wasn't based on cost. It wasn't based on any reality, but it was also something that we could live with when we had, you know, 10%, 20% of the current number of our medical programs are out there and the volumes were relatively high. And Medicare certainly has not kept up even with inflationary pressure since that point in time. So that's a big part of why the charges kept going up. You know, I find it interesting that when I printed out the bill, you know, which was a COVID relief bill, it was about 1400 pages on, uh, on my computer. Almost half of those were uh, bills, 400. So less than half, I guess. But anyway, about 400 pages were related to balanced billing 
And of that 470 of them were related to air ambulance specifically. So, I mean, we certainly caught the attention of somebody to be able to wind up with that much attention in the bill. Um, I I think that there's a lot of things that are going to have to happen. And I think that we're going to maybe go through a difficult point here while we try to decide how we're going to, you know, live in our new environment and and with our new uh, diet, if you will, to be able to work with. The first thing is we're going to have to decide what we want in the way of access, you know, you're not going to be able to have a program operating in central Wyoming, you know, where there's 500,000 people in the entire state, you know, and, and operating at 15 or 14, 12, whatever it would be, you know, flights a month and be able to do so with an average charge that's going to be somewhere around, you know, $25,000, $30,000. It just right. isn't going to happen. Right. So we're going to have to decide is cost the cost of doing business in the area reasonable when you're starting to look at volume. If you're going to look at volume, then you've got to ask the question, does it make any sense to have two aircraft sitting in a community providing services where, you know, between them, they're each getting 15 flights a month, but there really could be 30 flights a month, which would then be a viable program. And that is a really hard decision to be able to deal with, because if you start getting into that type of decision, the only entity right now in the structure we've got that could do it would be the federal government. And so the federal government would have to set up some means, you know, similar like to what they did with Max or other things like that, to be able to make a decision on distribution. And I don't know if they're ready to, you know, if there's the political will to get to that. But access is going to be something they have to think about. Yeah, I, think I mean, the other thing that may happen is that finally, you know, people may understand what it takes to provide one of these services. Again, if you, if you look at the cost of providing a service and you, 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 know, you figure in the um, overhead that's necessary to be able to make it there, so you fully burden it, and then you go ahead and realize that you, you've got Medicare fixed, you've got Medicaid fixed, and you've got self-pay, which is you know, almost nothing. And most programs, that's well past 50% of their uh, yep. pay mix. And growing Medicare. And growing, yeah, and yeah. absolutely growing. And and so if you go ahead and you take those and you divide the, the volume that you've got into the expense of providing the service, offset it with those, then you really are looking at a $35,000, $40,000 type of a bill that has to happen so that you can net an average that's going to pay for the service. And I think the insurance companies may be a little surprised in the um, IRB process because I think they um, may find out just how expensive this is and how justified the charges are. Yeah, now, I, th- I think, you know, as an industry, we were our own uh, worst enemy. I mean, because when these programs first started, you know, they were billing ground ambulance rates, right. you know, and it exactly. was looked at by the hospital as a marketing thing. You know, I got my name on it, um, you know, and when we went through, you know, the whole after the negotiated rulemaking, I kept saying, you know, we need to really get down to what our costs are. And I I think the other problem with, you know, and two sides of this is that on the hospital-based programs and having been at both independent or hospital-based, it's so hard to know what your dang costs are. Everything's all over the place. I mean, I've gone into places and they say, oh yeah, we're doing great. And I go, well, what are you measuring? And, you know, usually hospitals, all you manage is the expense not the reimbursement. And I know when I went to Duke, that was a 
I, I really tried to get them to look at the charges. And I said, this is way under what this is really costing. But it was, it's so hard, unless the hospital has really good cost accounting to know what exactly that program costs. And then you have, I think, some of the criticism of the for-profit programs then would be, okay, maybe you have a good cost sheet, but then how much money is going to investors? You know, And if you cut out that, or at least part of that, um, I, I just felt uh, when we did negotiation with Blue Cross in Minnesota, when I was at LifeLink, it's, I think it was a realization to them that this is a true cost because I said, we're completely independent. There's no money coming from the hospitals. This is what it's costing us. And we're, we've got you know, good flight volumes and we're um, certainly not spending a lot of money on unnecessary things. But that's the problem is getting that, that cost and right. it's, uh, it's so different. And then, then you look at each helicopter, right. just the helicopters themselves and how much they cost. And, you know, you bring up an interesting point too, and that is the, the ownership type of an idea, you know, with a hospital, a hospitals looked at it basically as a loss leader and most of them still do. Yep. And they charge below that. When you look at a publicly traded company, like Air methods was um, before they were, were acquired, you're dealing with a company where unless they issue a dividend, the money is actually all still going within the company. The, the value to the investors is the increased value of the stock. stock so right. their, you know, their, their payout is dealing with the trading of the stock between other people. And that never was money that was going to be operational to the, to the entity. Um, so the public model is actually relatively pure in that way. But what's now happened is, is that uh, most of them are either privately owned, which is rare, or private equity owned. And in the private equity, you know, their goal is, again, to basically get as high a value as they can in the, um, in the organization. They may take some dividends during that time, but they're also basically building a company to be able to go either public again or to go ahead and sell to another sell it, entity yeah. and be able to deal with it. And so... You know, there's, there's lots of reasons why people are concerned about private equity and healthcare and the mission. The thing I find amazing about what's happening right now is whether you look at, you know, where you were with Lifelike 3, if you look at the Lifelike Network um, up in the Northwest, if you look at what Intermountain Healthcare has just done with their acquisition of Classic and the huge footprint, I mean, that puts them in eight states, you know, plus two, uh, uh, another country and a, and a territory. Yeah. I didn't realize and, that. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you look at Stat Medivac. You look at, <clears> I mean, I'm, you know, Boston MedFlight, whatever. You know, these these are all not-for-profit entities that are flourishing in this certain area, and most of them are doing so because they've actually come up with a business model that allows them to be able to deal with it, um, and because of the way their um, their need or lack thereof of having to hit the same type of profit margins that were required for either a public company or a yeah. private equity. So I think that that evolution is, is, is very interesting, but these big not-for-profits are not in business to lose money. They are in business to be able to continue their mission. And that yeah, you've, you've got to have, have, you've got to have a margin to capitalize. Thanks. No margin, and no mission. That's right. James used to tell me that all the time. Yes. Right. I remember that your quote on the, well, I know we could talk about uh, balanced billing for a long time, but it's going to be interesting. 
how this all shakes out um, this yeah, year. It's really critical that as we go into the IRB process, that people are well prepared and that they understand how to communicate the costs. That's yeah. Important. Yeah. Um, let's talk about um, the medical transport leadership. Uh, you and I both were uh, founding regents um, and uh, instructors, and um, this is involved uh, uh, to be a really successful program now, 20 plus years ago. I, I think I remember saying to you uh, when we were preparing this, I, I thought at the time that, you know, there was how many programs, so we're going to be out of business in three years, you know, we'll right. train all the administrators. So um, what, what do you believe is the reason for the success and how has MTLI changed over the years? Uh, I mean, like you, I'm incredibly proud of that. I mean, if, if you were to ask me to, you know, stick my finger on the thing that in my career, I probably have the greatest you know, personal pride in, it is MTLI. Um, yeah. It's really an excellent school. I mean, it's, you know, th that initial group of us that met, um, it was five of us. Um, but anyway, we got together, we were talking about the, the problem was, was that as things were growing and programs were getting bigger, people were being promoted into the roles of program directors that generally had strong clinical backgrounds because right. they were employee of the hospital where others in the program frequently weren't. And you were having people that were poorly prepared to be in management, finding themselves in very serious management roles. I mean, they, you know, they'd never read a set of financials. They didn't know what a balance sheet was or how to be able to deal with it. They, you know, had a limited understanding when it came to some of the rules and regulations around HR. They didn't know how you'd finance an aircraft if you were to go ahead and buy one. They didn't understand, you know, aircraft leasing and those type of things. And so what we thought was we tried to put together a, you know, a, a mini MBA type of thing to be able to get people going. And I think what happened was we wound up with a lot of the leadership of the industry coming there, but the leadership that came being good leaders realized they needed to start, you know, building that, that strength behind them. And so what we saw was somebody would come from a program that was in a leadership role, and the next year, three people from that program would show up. And then what we started seeing was we started seeing, you know, job descriptions that would come out where somebody was being hired for something, it would say CMTE, you know, preferred. And I think, I think one of the great values of, of the program, almost beyond the education, is the, the networking that happens because Everybody that comes to that school, the instructors included, leaves their logo wear at the door. You know, we don't worry about who's with what program, who's got what, you know, going on. And you, you see competitors sitting down together working on a project to be able to get things done. I think that the, the collaboration and the networking that comes from that is just incredibly valuable. I remember talking to a person that I encouraged to go to it. And, you know, she said, well, I, I, I don't think I'm, you know, capable of this type of management. And when she got done with the school, it wasn't so much the education, it was the fact that she um, was able to go ahead and say, wow, you know, these other people are just like me and, and, and sure, I'll give it a shot, I'll work at it. So that was, that was a piece of it. Um, I think that, that that all can uh, be a value there. And so it's, it, it's just good and, and it's got a good reputation and I think that it's very, very collaborative and I think that all helps. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, Ogle Bay certainly helped us to put that oh, together. Right. 
in uh, you know initially funding it all, and um, but in looking at the curriculum, you know, I think if we would just have done that ourselves, we just it would have been what's the latest thing. So you do balanced right. billing this year or something. That's not the core. It's really uh, you know they they had the campground school, they had mm -hmm. a golf PGA right. school, yeah, and we look. I remember remember we pulled out all their curriculum mm -hmm. stuff. And it was very similar. It, it was yeah. it was um, on uh, marketing, you know, government relations, uh, finance, uh, strategic planning, um, HR types of things. And I think that has really been a key to success too. Um, it was always my favorite work week of the year. I mean, it was yeah. and it was fun. And what I did, I was not one to send multiple people for one year from the organization. I'd say there's going to be one first year student and one second year, because, you know, the first and second year, you hardly see each other because you're so right. busy in the second year. But I said, the purpose is to network and meet people. Um, and those are career long, you know, relationships that you have uh, with people. And I said, I don't want you hanging around because I, I, I do remember some groups would send five, six people, but all they do is hang around together. Well, you already do that. Learn something new, you know, bring something back from, you know, one of the for-profit programs or, you know, learn what they do. And um, yeah, things seem to be going really well. I, I think it was um, sad, some of the changes that I think Rick, uh, Sherlock Forrest that, you know, Denise and some of the others left, because I, I really don't, even though it is an AIMS thing it really is for the whole community uh, everyone and I, I it would have been better to keep everyone involved but it's it's nice I'm glad um, you know Ed Marasco um, stepped up and uh, chaired for a while and then uh, Tom Lieberman now is doing doing things so I think uh, it's going and, and you had said I think too is that it's a good mix of folks that have been there from the beginning to people that have been there for several years and now some new folks coming right. in and so um, yeah I mean obviously just like in Indian management you need to have a succession plan and start moving yeah um, so uh, and that's something we probably could have done a little bit better job at the very beginning um, because uh, we all liked it so much you know and, and right. it was so successful so um, uh, you know, you had told me I hadn't realized that uh, Bob Freitas, one of our original regents, had passed away last year. You know, with COVID and stuff, you don't hear about it. And um, so, you just want to talk about what we're going to be doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, we're going to kind of have a Zoom wake for him, if you will. We're going to honor him and, and yep. get the regents together from you know the very beginning to the folks that are there now and and just uh, you know, tell some stories and, and remind us what it was like. He was a pretty spectacular person. You know, he was had a great spirit. Um, and part of his shtick was being sort of a curmudgeon, but it really wasn't his his soul. Yeah. And uh, you know, he uh, he was a real force in helping us get this thing up and going. So it, absolutely, uh, yeah. He. I, the thing about Bob is it seems like he could teach anything and, and uh, he, he always had, you know, that we had, and I don't know if you're still doing that, but you get the scores and how mm -hmm. people have rated the classes. And, 
we were all very high. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, uh, anybody was uh, really sucking at the thing, but the uh, Bob was always the highest, always yeah. the highest. Yeah. And it was, uh, they would drive us all crazy, but it just had a good rapport. And uh, we, uh, you told me then we, uh, you and I've worked on putting together this program for the regents right. and instructors. Um, June 10th, I put together, uh, we got some of the pictures of him and put together a, a little video that we'll be playing. So, uh, and you still teach uh, financial management, right. right, at the school. Yeah. So I know you It's become a two hour lecture. It's uh, great fun <laughs> to try to keep people yeah. focused on finance for two hours. But uh, again, it's, it's, it's scoring well. So I guess it's meeting somebody's needs. I think what you need to require since we're over almost two and a half hours right now that they are required to listen to this podcast too, as well as your two hour lecture, <laughs> <laughs> learn a little bit more about you. So um, I, the, the funniest story I have about you at MTLI is that when we, I was, you know, in charge of groups in the second year and they'd always, uh, you know, you'd have to present like you're presenting to a board of directors and it would be the other regents and instructors that would be sitting up there and that it all be scared as that Craig, Craig Yale's not going to be on our panel. It's, and I said, ah, I think he is. And, you know, and uh, they, they were always so scared. And so you got the, the um, reputation and we called you the shark and, uh, you were so good at you and you are so good about the details on financials. If they one little thing, and I called that, if there's a little blood in the water, he's going to go after it. And so we better be prepared. And I think it helped people be better prepared for the financial thing. So that was, that was fun. So I remember um, one, one of the students who I have great respect for, but they had a major problem in the way that they set up their financials and it just wasn't real. And unfortunately, their outcome was based on this this financial, and so I was pointing out the issue and asking questions around it. I wanted to have it be a teaching moment when people could understand why that wasn't going to work and how it affected everything else that was there. It wasn't, you know, I mean, as you know, it isn't a fail because there's a problem with your your piece. It's supposed to be learning. But I remember this particular student looking at me, and I thought. He wants to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hence the shark. Yeah. So, so you, um, I know you've written a lot of articles and, uh, uh, and you, uh, one, one piece I wanted you to talk about is the Air Medical Physicians Association handbook. Uh, you've written the financial chapters in that. How did you become involved with that? Um, again, another force of nature is Ira Blumen, you know, and <laughs> yes. I was, uh, the person who was putting that all together. And uh, Ira came to me and asked me if I'd write the financial chapter. And, and uh, I enjoyed doing it. Uh, it was nice to go through a really serious editing process. And, uh, and then when the second one came out, he asked me if I would go ahead and, and you know, write that chapter or at least uh, review the one I had and, and make any adjustments. So and the wonderful thing about finance is, is that it's, it, it's not changing a whole lot at the level that we have to deal with it. You know, there are changes in gap each year and stuff like that, but uh, it's, it's still pretty straightforward. Yeah. So is it written for a physician to understand finance? Is that the, yeah, the purpose? I, 
the whole textbook, I mean, if you've ever seen it, it's like, you know, it's like an inch and a half, two inches thick. It's a, it's quite a book. Um, and it's sort of like MTLI in a book for paramedical physicians. I mean, it's just, it's a, a book that has all sorts of information in it that somebody who finds themselves as a medical director for a flight program or a, for that matter, ground ambulance program. To understand. Um, that yeah. it gives them tools to be able to look at, to understand the uniqueness of the industry and what it is that, um, that they need to understand as the, as the medical director. And so finance, we felt was an important area for them to be able to have a, an understanding of because it's not a big part of their education. And a lot of times these medical directors wind up being sort of the uh, backup, if you will, to the program director when it comes to the program management. And for them to have a credible understanding of finance helps them when they're dealing with administration and the hospitals and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, that's, that's fantastic. Um, 2016, you had one of the highest honors in our industry with the Marriott Carlson Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, you know, congratulations. I know that's quite an honor. Um, and I will have a link to the video of that in the, in the uh, podcast uh, uh, notes on the webpage. But um, uh, that must have meant quite a lot to you, getting that. Yeah, it, it did. I, I, you know, when I was younger, I'd watch people get the awards and think, that's great, you know. But it didn't, you know, I, I remember Michelle North, and many people will, wonderful lady, but, you know, she died way too young. Yes. She was quoted as saying, I'll come back and haunt you if you name it on a word after me. Um, and I, I think that that tends to be the way people think. But when you get towards the latter part of your, your career and everything else, it's really, really nice to be recognized that what you've done has made a difference and that people think there's value to it. And so, I mean, it's, it, it is a real amazing honor. But I got to tell you, the biggest honor for me when it came to that was not getting the award. It was who nominated me. Um, Russ Spray nominated me for the award. And yeah. I have just massive admiration for that man. I mean, he was a mentor, a friend, um, you know, an incredible leader in the industry. And um, I just, you know, like I said the fact that the Russ nominated me touched my heart the strongest in the whole thing. But yeah. Uh, I'm certainly appreciated, appreciative of having been recognized. Thanks. Yeah, that was great. I remember that year. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about your uh, personal life. Where, where are you originally from? Um, by pure coincidence, I was born in Salt Lake City. My dad was doing a, um, a sort of a residency here. and He was yeah. in the second class um, out of Minnesota, the University of Minnesota. And oh, yeah, Chief. sure. And so, you know, being in the second class, just like the, the first class guys, they weren't really sure what to do with them. And so one of the things they did was that they had to go do sort of a preceptorship at a hospital somewhere. And dad wound up here in Salt Lake. And so it happened to be when I was born. Um, when I was about six months old, we moved to Sheridan, Wyoming, and I grew up in Sheridan, Wyoming. Dad was CEO there of that hospital for like 38 years wow. um, and, and retired from there. Um, went to the University of Wyoming, married my wife, went to Colorado uh, following hers down to Colorado Springs, was there for about 20 some odd years, 
and uh, moved over here to Utah again uh, for Rocky. And, um, you know, with the exception of the five years with uh, Turkey, um, I've been here and we've been here 22 years now. So yeah. this is this is now home again. So even when but, you were with their method, you stayed at in Salt Lake? I, I, I did. It, it was one of those things that was sort of funny because there, you know, I moved to Pro, to Salt Lake, to Sandy, actually, where I live. Yep. Because I felt disconnected from what was going on in the corporation at Rocky. And I, I was commuting back and forth from Colorado Springs. And that was okay with them, but I felt like I was just missing out on too much of what was being decided in the hallways, you know, in casual conversation that I needed to be here. I came here and then a couple of years later, we were bought by our methods. And then I was commuting back to a corporation that was about 40 minutes from my old home in Colorado Springs. But it had been a very painful thing to pull up roots and my daughters were both in the junior high school, high school type age group. Yeah, tough. And I just wasn't gonna do it to them again. And one of the things I found was that not being based in Denver allowed me to be freer to be able to go out and deal with the issues that were out there. So I was traveling like 250 days a year, literally almost every Monday through Friday, somewhere dealing with something. But I didn't have an anchor at my desk in Denver because of not being, not living there. Um, And so I think it helped with what I was being asked to do. I also would frequently stop in Denver. I mean, I did have a desk there um, so that I could stay involved, but it was also part of the management style of that senior team that really allowed us to be more decentralized. And so it, it, it worked. And so, you know, occasionally I was kidded for being the only person on the senior team that didn't live there. Um, I remember being in China one time and having person that was there talk about me needing to get there soon and that they would get an apartment set up and whatever and Aaron just robustly laughing he said look I can't get him to move to Denver you think you're going to get him to move to to Beijing (laughs) uh, Uh, so actually the the move to Istanbul was quite a surprise (laughs) yeah so did you you kept did you keep a residence in the U.S. and then yeah my my wife would do two months here in the states and two months with me in Istanbul and just going back and forth but we had pets and everything else. I mean, there was there was a need to have yeah. a foot still here. And and quite frankly, it helped even when it came to all the issues around taxes and everything else to have a permanent residence here. Well, talk about your children. What are they doing now? Uh, I've got two daughters. One is a, uh, a kindergarten teacher. And uh, following her passion, she has just amazing empathy with kids. And, uh, and so very proud of that. And then my other daughter is a PA. Um, oh. She uh, works out in Bellingham, Washington. And uh, she's, you know, I, I, part of what she, I think she would tell you that she chose being a PA over going to med school was the independence that it gives you. you. You don't wind up getting tied to a single practice. You have the ability to sort of do other things. You don't have to overly specialize. I mean, she was Oh, um, dealing with neuromuscular diseases and stuff for a long time. And that was sort of her specialty. She's um, now dealing more with, a, well, in quite, it's, it's an extended care type of a, of a situation or not a not extended care, but a you know step down from uh, patients that are being moved from a hospital to a place where they still need to have 
specialty care. And COVID produced an interesting thing with that in that she, um, her facility was one of the early ones that was hit with COVID. She wound up with COVID back in March of last year. Um, when she was done with her experience with COVID, um, personal experience, she was able to come back and be able to work with the patients there, you know, with the assumption that there was some type of relative immunity. Obviously, she was still doing all the precautions and everything else, but it ran through their facility. And when the state of Washington decided that they needed to do something, they basically established three facilities that would be receiving facilities for COVID positive patients that were not having to be in the hospital in order to free up beds in the hospital. And so one of her facilities became one of these three in the state. And so she wound up having almost all of her patients be patients with active COVID. Um, yeah, Washington state was one of the early ones right. that was hit, right? That was, yeah. Yeah. So has she had any long-term effects from it? Um, yeah, she's had a few things. I mean, I think that, um, that it's probably been a bit of a compromise. She's an extremely active athletic type of a person. Yeah. And I think that she's recognized that there's probably some respiratory um, deficit as far as just respiratory function um, that she's working hard on getting back and that type of stuff. Um, she had an extended period where she had a little bit of a, almost a Bell's palsy type of a thing that was sort of a, a piece of it. But I would say she's recovered well. Um, she's, you know, fortunately not having all the, the issues that some people yeah, are having. That's, that's good. Yeah. Cause there's, all kinds of, I mean, by and large people recover, but then there's all these other cases, long-term things. So, and your wife, is she still working or? Um... <laughs> uh, yes. Um, my wife is, um, you know, she's a med tech. She um, is actively involved in laboratory stuff. She wound up becoming part of what was necessary to be able to bring the IT side into the lab. And she's been yeah. focusing on that for a long time. Officially, her last day as a full-time employee was uh, was the end of uh, this month, but or last month actually. But uh, because she's so active on some of the projects and stuff, she's still Don't go on. Yeah. still doing it on a PRN basis. So yeah. So uh, just a uh, uh, one more uh, question. I know um, you're very. Uh, I didn't know this about you until I think several years after I first knew you, how much you like music and that you play instruments and woodworking, collecting vintage VWs. I know you have a picture of some of your VWs uh, and uh, uh, traveling, of course. And then uh, your newest thing is here, a kayaking adventure. I know you were, when I was talking to you, you were putting together the kayak. So talk about uh, your, your other uh, uh, joys in life. Well, music's a, a big piece of it for me. I um, here my Volkswagen. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, um, yeah, music's always been a really big piece for me since I was a, a young boy, um, and I enjoy both music and quality instruments, and so that has resulted in an obsession. And fortunately, I have a indulgent wife who allows me to follow my obsessions. Um, I have, for example, five pianos. I probably have nine guitars. <laughs> oh um, you know, I have a sitar, I have a banjo, I have a uh, bazooki from Greece. I have an oud from the Middle East. I have uh, 
But in Burka, I have a Kanun from Turkey. I have a Gazang from China. And I mean, I'm barely scratching the surface, but these are all instruments that I generally picked up in countries that I was either working in or, or visiting. And uh, so I have a, a huge collection that someday my children are gonna have to sell at a garage sale or something. But then, <laughs> so what, what type of guitars do you have? I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, all acoustic. Um, all I, acoustic, I, okay. Yeah, they're all acoustic. I mean, I've got a, a Big Buddy Guild 12. I've got um, a very interesting guitar that was called a Giannini. It's got a, a unique shape to it. I've got one of the original ovations while they were still being made in the United States, beautiful instrument. Um, I've got a Martin uh, uh, D41 or 30, D31. Yeah, the real. It's the the high-end Martin, but without the extra flourish on the on the mother of pearl stuff. Um, again, just a, a gorgeous instrument. Um, I've got a classical guitar. Um, is is that the type of music you play? Is it more classical or? Uh, to be honest with you, it's probably more, um, you know, 70s, 60s type oh. um, stuff. I mean, fair amount of folk, a little bit of, um, on the guitar anyway, it's, it's mostly in that area. Uh, on the piano, it tends to be a little bit more um, fusion jazz or maybe even what you might call new age music. I, it, that that oh. tends to make a picture that's not quite what I want to say, but uh, um you know, some David Lance and that type of stuff. That's, that's um, great. That's, I, I, I um, you know, more uh, left brain and I wanted to get over there on the right side. So I picked up, uh, been playing bass guitar for uh, maybe 10 and a half years now or so and play with some groups and still learning stuff. In fact, I was just reading an article about uh, Prince, you know, who's, who's from the Minneapolis area and what an accomplished musician. I mean, his initial records, he played every instrument and he, right. he's a, he's a, an incredible bass player and you don't know him for being a, a bass player, but it's uh, it's been fun playing uh, music and learning and getting into them sort of taking lessons from uh, Fender has lessons yeah. online that I do. And then I play with, uh, with COVID and stuff, I play with a good friend of mine is a physician up in the Duluth area. And we play through a thing called Jazz Kazam. And you can play through your computer, you hook, get this set and you hook everything in. And it works really well, you know, yeah. it uh, improves. So um, on the VWs, I was gonna ask you, so the people that are listening to the podcast aren't seeing these pictures, but you have to go to the video podcast, Craig is, put up different pictures as his as background. So what year are those two, the bus yeah. and the VW? Yeah, the bus is a, a 67. Wow. Um, and it's fully original split window, uh, what they call a 13 window bus. Um, and I made it to be as close as I possibly can to what it would have looked like when it came off the factory floor. Um, the bug on the other hand is a 71 Super Beetle a verbal 71 okay um but uh it has everything it has a volkswagen body sort of stuck on top of an amazing piece of engineered work that there was a group there is a group out in ventura california called airheads and they built this car um and it has basically everything you could do to one um it's got porsche wheels on it it's been lowered it's been narrowed it's been you know stuff i don't even know i mean 
channeled, fixed, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, big torsion bar put in it to be able to deal with it. Um, the advantage of the Super Beetle is it actually has a McPherson strut front end so it can handle the power they put in it. Normal Volkswagen engines around 15, 1600 cc's. This one is 2332. Wow. Um, you know, instead of 40, 50 horsepower, this one's approaching 200 horsepower. So it's a kind of an insane vehicle. Um, so it's it's everything custom as opposed to the other one, which is everything stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, I, I always liked the the bug. I actually had one, I think 1970 or around there. Um, but um, uh, I, I thought, you know, they brought it back and I thought some of the styling was fabulous. Yeah. You know, they really yeah. looked nice, but then they've abruptly said they're not going to build them anymore. Yeah. Did you see that? I said, wow. I, I, maybe they just weren't selling. I don't know what the, what the problem well, was. Selling. It's just Volkswagen, you know, has changed so dramatically. You know, when, when these vehicles were being produced, they were being produced as a relatively low cost, uh, you know, vehicle for the masses type of a thing. And Volkswagen has been very successful in their growth and they, um, you know, are producing really quality cars and everything else. But I think the thing is, is that they're, well, at last I heard, they're the number one largest auto manufacturer in the world now. And I think oh. they just got to the point where their their market is different. And that's probably why. I mean, you, you see they're trying to bring back something that's the bus too. Yes. It's supposed to be actually available shortly, but the price is going to be just sky high. It's going that's to be what, yeah. way up there with the sprinters and everything else. And so, I don't know. We'll see. But I... I think the thing is, is if you do get the Volkswagen bug, it's, uh, uh, and I mean infection, not, not the bug, but if you get that, um, it becomes just a lifelong, you know, passion. And so yeah, that's great. It's, it's, it's fascinating to go to the, the club meets and different things like that, because um, it just tends to be a, a unique group of people that are into Volkswagens. And as a friend of mine from Switzerland said, you, you either love them or you don't get it. You know, there's no in between. <laughs> yeah. Well, Craig, I know we've been talking a long time here, but is there anything else that um, we might not have mentioned that you wanted to cover before we? No, I think I think the only thing is what I would sort of close anything with, and that is that, uh, you know, this is a, a necessary, good, and honorable industry and profession that we've had the chance to be part of. And it requires focus. It requires remembering what it is, remembering why we're doing it. And that's the patient. And so keeping it patient-centric, I think is really critical for our success and our future that's there. And the other thing is, is that we cannot lose focus on the safety side of things because we do no good if we're not able to provide the service or if we wind up killing our patient. So, you know, again, understand the responsibility it is really important but it's really worth it too yeah well that's excellent uh, closing words because safety and patient care I, I just love when programs talk about patient care stories and it seems you know i follow all the air medical news and stuff and it seems like there's more patient stories that come out of um europe mm -hmm. and england than, than here and you know there's some really good ones here and i know some people have tried to do that and some programs do, do do a good job. So, well, Craig, thank you so much. I know this has been a long time out of your day and you should be either working on your kayak or doing some consulting. So uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. 
You bet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com, iTunes, or the Air Medical Today YouTube channel. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Instagram, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for the use as the theme song of the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and fly safe. Thank you.